This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. Subliminal against the United States. episode 142 i am your co-host dimitri and call it is out today doing subliminal field work but thankfully i have a guest with me to talk about a very fascinating topic today will also i think be subliminal jihad's first official foray into the quote-unquote art world So we have a lot to get into today to talk about men, networks, boogeymen, on tops, etc. So let's just get into it and say hi to our guest, Aaron Moulton. Aaron, are you there? Hi. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. I'll just say right off the bat, I think I discovered you on Instagram about a year ago from some posts you had made about an art exhibit that you would put on at, now I'm going to test my Polish here, the Ujazdowski Castle, is that right? The U- That's right. That's the Ujazdowski right. Castle in Poland called the Influencing Machine. And uh, I guess not to bury the lead, but today we are talking about somebody that I think has come up since the very earliest episodes of A Subliminal Jihad, but it is a... Uh, it is a name that carries such strange weight with it. We are talking, of course, about George Soros. You created an exhibit in Poland uh, that debuted last fall that dealt with uh, George Soros. And something that maybe I had read about in passing before, but really didn't know much about, which is the SCCA, the Soros Center for Contemporary Art, right? That's right. Yeah. And I was drawn into this right away because I had never I I don't think I've seen in the art world or God, even in the journalism world or even in a lot of books, a lot of like meditation upon um, Soros that doesn't fall into a typical binary, which I'm sure we're going to talk about today uh, and the difficulty of discussing Soros. But yeah, we're going to get into that today. I guess to start, would you like to give just a little bit of background about what you your background in the art world and how you came to be interested in this topic and kind of you know the uh yeah i don't know your evolution leading up to wanting to do this exhibit and what what is this exhibit can you tell us yeah 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 well uh thank you so much for having me i'm a big fan of podcast and uh feel like it's a great 
you know, new kind of prism through which to see this story, because this is a story that's kind of locked in a box and hidden away uh, deep under a rug in the art world. And uh, no one's really been willing to touch it or look at it properly. And so um, I'm a I'm a curator uh, by trade, but I, I, I'm uh, really looking at what I do uh, as anthropology. I'm, uh, I see my, my practice as an anthropological practice, uh, trying to use um, curating and exhibition making to perform uh, social experiments and uh, to help uh, look at ideas of magical thinking and tactical media and, uh, and perception management. And so my uh, my work with this subject is uh, is a, kind of a lifelong uh, investigation. I, I encountered it originally as a journalist back in 2005. I saw mention of it and it was a thing that stuck out to me because I had a very fluent awareness in the evolution of the global art world and, and, you know, you know, was involved in, you know, I had a a pretty great degree at the Royal college of art in London, which was all focused on post-colonial theory and particularly histories of European histories of art and contemporary art. And, uh, and my own uh, interests uh, were, were always looking at the uh, mutations and anomalies of in the evolution of the global art world And so to discover this thing and not have it a part of my education, but to discover it on my own was shocking um, because this is not just like a funny little footnote to art history. Uh, The the story of the Soros Centers for Contemporary Art is the the creation of a network of 20 art centers that kind of mushroomed overnight and appeared all throughout every major capital of Eastern Europe in the early 90s, uh, right at the fall of the Soviet Union. And, uh, and this was a part of a larger um, thing that we can call the NGO movement, uh, where these uh, NG- non-governmental organizations are moving into the post-communist uh, space, uh, helping shepherd uh, transition towards Western-friendly systems, financial systems, ideology, and uh, infrastructures. And mm-hmm. so um, this this is a, uh, became interesting for me, not because it, was, it stuck out clearly as not just a footnote in the evolution of the global art world, but by leaps and bounds, the cornerstone and to not have it properly discussed and, and incorporated into an edu- you know, your standard education felt like a huge black hole for me. And so um, I, I, as a journalist did a research trip and, and went to all these, uh, went to 10 cities that had uh, SCCAs and just did on the ground uh, interviews with people to look at the evolutions of their art world in the 90s or excuse me in the then it was a 2005 2006 mm-hmm. and just to see what the art world was like in a post soros condition because uh, it has to be said these things were brief their appearance was uh starts in 92 and then they're they're starting to cut funding already in 98 99 they're many of them are closing already so it's a very brief and intense uh implementation of what they do uh and with art and culture and so, and then my work with the with it as a how it turns into an exhibition is really on the end, you know, where I'm, I've developed, you know, my own methodology for curating that is highly tuned to uh, this idea, these ideas of gonzo anthropology, so participatory anthropology and tactical anthropology and and so forth. And uh, for me, this story is an incredible case study that allows you to see how art is used to create social engineering and uh, and control transcendental aspirations and actually affect change in a very 
visible way. Um, so you can see how they've, you know, directionalized cultural production, instrumentalized the artist, weaponized the practice, mm. uh, even in, invented curating, invented contemporary art, and and really done this um, in a almost an artificial way, an artificially inseminated way in places that didn't have this kind of advanced way of looking uh, prior. So there's a lot in it that allows us to see, you know, ideas of social engineering. What does art look like when it's like transplanted Western, you know, contemporary art culture is transplanted and implemented as a institutionalized formula. And so, yeah. And, um, and then I made this exhibition. This is the second time I made the exhibition and the exhibition is a hot potato, um, because it's, um, it's not really, something that the Western art world is looking is willing to look at as a story because my story is not just analyzing this thing and telling this story in an innocent way, but it's telling the story of how art can be um, weaponized for the purpose of propaganda. And in this case, neoliberal propaganda. And what makes the story even more powerful today is that it is about, it's a story about astroturfing mm -hmm. and, uh, and really looking at the, the introduction of what we call socially engaged practice uh, which is everything right now in, in contemporary art, how an artist can be used to perform an activist agenda. Uh, that's really something we can almost say is uh, in uh, not conceived, but in a, in a very collective way uh, rolled out across these 20 major metropolises. And then it kind of spills virally into the global art world. So yeah. you can, you can yeah. see a lot of things in this story. No, absolutely. Like so many things jumped out at me right away. This is like an aha moment when I saw your first Instagram stories about it. And I think I even reposted one of them right away. And I think what I wrote was new Soros on top exhibit debuting in Poland. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that term. That That is a term coined by Khalid, um, my co-host. And you know, which means ontological operations, sort of uh, in contra to psyops or psychological operations. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe the way we use it is sort of, you know, the on top is like a macro phenomenon, whereas a psyop is a more particular, specific, you know, operation to do one specific thing. But, you know, uh, maybe there's been more time talk about psyops in recent years. But the idea of like an ontological operation, I feel like that really a, that label really applies to what you've uncovered here about the SCCA and the sort of you know basically the fostering of a of new kinds of like subjectivities and ways of you know using art in the world and and the whole question of like what is being focused on and when you look at the list of like what SCCA tended to kind of uh, promote like the particularities of like nationalisms or lost practices, um, you know, or things that were suppressed under communism, all these things, you can kind of see there's some level of like conscious coordination going on there. And it all does, uh, as you lay out in the, uh, the essay that you sent me also kind of laying out all these ideas, um, you can really all tie it back to like the sort of Popperian open society vision. And it it just, it syncs up with so many things we've talked about on this podcast. Like one thing uh, that definitely jumps out is um, we did these episodes on cybernetics last year. 
And we talked about the Santa Fe Institute. You know, that's down there in Santa Fe, New Mexico. They've brought in all these, everybody from like these theoretical physicists and things like that to like Cormac McCarthy. They got a bunch of money from Epstein. And it's definitely pursuing a kind of uh, a cybernetics adjacent kind of idea, but specifically trying to do it within like a neoliberal capitalist framework. And one essay about it had talked about how you know, part of the success of the SFI model was not so much to create like people with an SFI uh, ideology, but like to create SFI libertarians that kind of move through the world and like like the, their specific political ideology is not as important as kind of a vibe that they bring to everything. And I see something very similar with the Soros contemporary art moment that you've covered where, I mean, there definitely is an overarching neoliberal uh, flavor to all of it, but at the same time, it's coming under this guise of not being centralized. In fact, its whole raison d'etre is it's it's not the closed society. It's not the Eastern Bloc, et cetera, et cetera. It's offering these new modes of expression and uh, blah, 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 and visibility and all these things. But when you kind of peek beneath the hood of the machine, you see that the other maxim that we're fond of repeating a lot these days is like the purpose of a system is what it does. This is like a cybernetics insight from the mid 20th century. And if you think about the purpose of the Soros Centers for Contemporary Art, like the purpose is what it did. And well, I think what you lay out, even though you're right, it was kind of a flash in the pan, but it was a very well-funded uh, flash in the pan. And I think the quote that uh, that you use in the essay, and I know you've talked about it, is that somebody, maybe it was one of the people who worked in Tallinn, Estonia, who said that it landed like a UFO, right? Mm-hmm. That was, the, the, right. That was, that was a, the description of it, right? It landed like a UFO in multiple cities, simultaneously uh right as the dust was settling from the collapse of the eastern bloc i mean it it tracks with so much i mean i think maybe the go-to that a lot of people also point to is uh in terms of historical precedent is the cia's involvement in funding abstract expressionism during the cold war I think a lot of I feel like a lot more people are aware of that now than even like five years ago. And maybe in some quarters, uh, you're I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe you're allowed to talk about that in the art world as a historical thing that happened. A curiosity, you know, to combat socialist realism, et cetera, et cetera. But I think maybe what makes your exhibit such a hot button is that we're not just talking about the past. I mean, first of all, it's not that long ago. It's the 90s, right? But also, uh, there's also the sort of geopolitical and cultural fissures between East and West that are now rearing their ugly head once again with the war in Ukraine. And also, as you mentioned, this these kind of paradigms of socially engaged practice and things like that are now absolutely ubiquitous and dominant in the art world. So it really was, it does feel like that this was sort of the seed from which contemporary, and I just mean that in terms of like nowadays, uh, art culture with like the biennials and uh, all this other stuff, the sort of the hyper gentrification kind of drive of art these days, a lot of it can be traced back to the pioneering work of the SECA. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, a word uh, that I've kind of come up with 
uh, that we have a lot of synonyms for uh, or term I like is uh, scripted avant-garde. Mm. And, uh, and and we can look at that as the way we'd look at predictive programming or these kinds of things that are put in place to help route energy. And I think like that's what's the, you know, that when we talk about this idea of this thing landing there like a UFO, which like you said, a, an Estonian uh, archivist working at the SCCA in Tallinn is the one who I, I, I spoke to who said that. Um, I, I would bounce that idea off of all of everyone I would talk to, you know, whenever, as soon as I heard that, I was like, that's the easiest way to sum this up in terms of getting somebody's, you know, ability to contextualize that moment of what it looked like to suddenly receive this information. And, uh, and that was really affirmed, you know, we're, you know, most people would say that's, that's exactly right. You know, that's how it felt, especially, you know, <clears throat> the hard thing about this story is not only is Eastern Europe, uh, such a funny term, you know, it's larger than Western Europe, but people kind of, I think, see it very small in their minds. It's very easy to simplify. Uh, these are, these are, you know, many countries and each with their own story and complexity and different kind of communism, you know, across yeah. the different regions from Romania to Yugoslavia to, you know, whatever, uh, the actual USSR. And, um, and so each of these uh, places has to be really treated sensitively like a case study um, because they each are going to respond to the injection of this influence in a, in a, in a different way um, from, you know, whether we can say the uh, SCCA network introduced contemporary art as we know it to these places is, is, is really an overgeneralization of their work in places like Warsaw or in Prague, or in, uh, in, in Budapest, they were already quite advanced in their languages of contemporary art, dissident art, and, uh, and, and relationships with the West. And so the impact of the SCCA might have been, uh, you know, very, you know, very different than what it was going to be like in Chisinau, Moldova, where they literally introduced the term contemporary art, and nobody knows what the hell it is. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and they have to be groomed and educated on what these, uh, these terms mean. The, the real practical you know differences between the CIA story uh, with abstract expressionism um, and and this story is is kind of a you know in a way of, of, I would compare it as a, a passive and aggressive phenomenon the CIA story is a PR exercise ultimately uh, and and they're giving a, a financial encouragement to a movement that's clearly offered a, in a way of an aesthetic formula to understanding the freedom of the mind, mm-hmm. uh, abstract expressionism as a counterpoint to socialist realism, which is the absolute control of the artist's creativity to, you know, uh, to manifest the, the, uh, the, you know, idealizations of the state and of the, you know, the, of, of communism and so forth, uh, the the artist as a creator is completely usurped and, uh, and an instrument of propaganda. Whereas in abstract expressionism, there could not be less control uh, of, of of how we think of creativity emerging as an energy from the individual without any restraint whatsoever. And and so the CIA's relationship to that is ultimately like we see this formula. This makes a lot of sense, and this is a. Also, uh, when we think of like Jackson Pollock uh, or any of these guys, it's such a easy formula to take on yourself. You know, like oh, I can do that. I can to replicate. Paint. My kid can do that for Christ's sakes. Th- there yeah, was exactly. a documentary so, called the, that, the, the, right? My kid could paint that. Yeah. Yeah. 
but the the mimetic the mimetic potential of um, of Abex, Abex was on its own going to do what it needed to do. I don't think the the CIA can take responsibility for the inception or for you know the the creation of anything of the technical side of abstract expressionism. That's true. It was, were, it was pre-existing, and then they gave it a huge PR boost, right? That's what they funded it. They through yeah. USAID exhibitions and through, uh, you know, uh, basically, you know, they, they funded, you know, the production of catalogs. And, and in some cases, there are stories of cultural operatives, second, third rate uh, Abex painters going to Tallinn, Estonia to teach mm-hmm. people, you know, drip techniques. And uh, and those stories are like known folklores in within Eastern Europe. But so this story uh, is I see it as a in a way a passive op you know that the cia can just let the american cultural uh, you know anomaly of abstract expressionism do do its thing we'll just throw gas on it and uh whereas because the form itself in a way and i don't mean that the artist intended it this way but the the mere form of abex is in a way like anti anti anti-soviet it in the sense of the the way the battle lines were drawn in sense because like it didn't even matter the the person doing an abex painting could be a heartfelt communist but it almost becomes completely irrelevant because of you know the abstraction of it and you know if if the soviets set them set themselves up against abstraction then inherently it becomes anti-soviet etc cetera, etc cetera. so you could see how yeah without having to do much except just promote it like it could run and do a lot of damage and kind of mess the, like, you know, scramble things up a little bit, but sorry, not to cut you I'll off. I'll tell you, but- I'll, I'll, no, 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 no. I'll tell you a, a weird thing I saw in a museum in Tallinn, Estonia. Uh, they had a room dedicated to dissident art of the, of the seventies and sixties. And the interesting thing was, uh, that was pointed out by my guide was that there were a couple painters that she knew were in the, uh, in that visitation of this third rate abex painter who might arguably have been a State Department person, uh, who uh, basically taught drip technique and color field technique, and um, and and the and the thing that you saw was uh, the the Estonian flag, the blue, white, black flag was uh, totally suppressed at that time. You weren't allowed to make representations of it, and so you saw these abstract works, drip paintings using black white and blue mm. that were allowing this uh this you know this desire of the the previous of the of the you know of the national identity to to come through in this very subverse through this very subversive technique um but what i just want to say to compare these two because i do think these stories are kissing cousins but one is like almost like a beta test for then what comes in the 90s sure um is the soros thing you see that these guys have an understanding of art unlike anything we've ever had in the entire history of the industry, which is for all intents and purposes kind of seen as an organic industry based on freedom of thought, growth, and whatever is this way in which creativity can just go. And so to suddenly see it turned into a a formula. So uh, imagine had they come up with, abstract expressionism as a formula mm. uh and, a, and as a as a as something to then employ and uh and put out there then sure. that's that's the that's the level of this they they actually are looking at contemporary art and seeing how it can be turned into a tool for what becomes called socially engaged practice mm. and so teaching artists how to um, use instead of their 
private genius in the studio uh, using paint and uh, canvas uh, using new media and tactical media to uh, perform acts of, of uh, you know, subversion in public with, you know, uh, creating projects that people might not even identify as art immediately. They become, yes. you know, weaponized kind of uh, interventions in perception. Absolutely. It becomes weaponized. And that that is an incredibly fascinating thing. And I think as we walk through this, we'll see like the the things that people are playing with, I think you do a great job in your essay of calling things out by names they normally wouldn't be called out by, like, you know, calling, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the, the, uh, installation on the Ukrainian battleship and you call it, you know, a false flag or an active measure and things like that, which I'm sure some people would be aghast that you would, you know, use these terms, but, or they would think, well, no, 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 this is just art. It's expression. But I think, you're you're absolutely right that there seems to be an intentionality behind this network that has a vision of like what art like of how art could be used as a social tool to change things within these societies and of course like we're not just talking about any old time we're talking about the very fraught, you know, sudden upheaval of one system being replaced by another and the invasion of every aspect of neoliberalism into these societies. And um, and it seems like, I mean, it's just like how there's that famous quote about somebody in the 80s was talking about the National Endowment for Democracy and said, oh, yeah, what the CIA was doing directly 20 years ago, that's what the NED does today. And maybe there's a parallel there with Soros in that what you see, and you also see it earlier in the Cold War with things, even things like the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, um, all of whom, I mean, the Ford Foundation financed Kenneth Anger in the 60s. They they had their, um, they had their eye on some like, and, and you know, it's like, oh, they, they bankrolled custom car commandos and then that becomes kind of the template of like MTV music videos 20 years later. Do we know if it's a direct line or not? Or were they just kind of throwing money around? But you see like the shift from, you know, when we say something is like CIA or it's an op, oftentimes, I mean, the easy like debunking thing that people try is to say like, you think the CIA sits around like studying art? And it's like, well, first of all, like in certain quarters, probably yes. But also what we mean when we say like CIA often, I think, is that institutions of government kind of contract out uh, certain initiatives to these private entities, uh, these foundations, these NGOs. And we can see it all around the world. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it. You know, I mean, even the concept of socially engaged practice immediately brings to mind something like Otpor in Serbia, right? Like the or Gene Sharp, you know, from dictatorship to democracy, and how they explicitly use things like joy and theatrics and dancing and music and things like that, and use a theatricality in order to uh, achieve a political objective, which often is overthrowing a government. And we've seen this happen dozens of times around the world. Maybe we'll we'll get into it later, like the. Even like the, the that performative lineage through you know maybe from the events of the late eighties in places like Romania and elsewhere, and then Otpor in Serbia, and then the Arab Spring in twenty eleven, and then 
you know, maybe even things that are going on today. So all of these issues, I mean, we're still living in this paradigm. So it's quite relevant to today, both in the artistic sense and the political, you know, sense and the broader social sense. This is the world that the Open Society, you know, foundation uh, kind of set out to build. And we've sort of ended up living in it. And to the point where it's like the weather. And I'm sure that... Uh, that you've had this encounter many times. I think you were you recall it in your essay of people sort of looking at you sideways when you even start top, talking about this subject because it's like literally something they've never thought about because, again, there's this uh, ontology of kind of randomness and organic, you know, this organic quality to the art world and things just happen. Like this kind of strange meritocratic... Uh, idea of things just like the the most interesting things just rise to the top and there's never any intentionality behind it which I, I feel like is a risky assumption to make in an industry that is so like wholly funded by NGOs and like billionaires you know basically yeah. to sustain itself George Soros is the world's most famous investor and speculator. It was his fund that earned in excess of $1 billion when he bet against the British pound in 1992. But he is more than just a money manager with one of the best track records in history. He is also a noted philanthropist whose gifts include a fund to prevent Russian nuclear scientists from selling their knowledge to a donation to help the children of war-torn Bosnia. Through his Open Society Fund, he has set up foundations throughout Eastern Europe with the hope of assisting those countries towards more free and democratic societies. It is a pleasure to have him back at this table for more conversation. Um, let me first talk about the, the uh, Eastern Europe. Give me your report card on what you think uh, both your own foundations have been able to accomplish and how the political and economic situation is there in terms of Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia. But it's very mixed. Uh, I think that a, a great opportunity uh, to move that whole region uh, towards what I call open societies has been missed. And uh, there's now, uh, in many places, a tendency uh, to develop some new form of uh, uh, totalitarian regimes. Well, totalitarian is too strong a word, but uh, authoritarian regimes uh, based on nationalist ideology in combination with newly emerging business interests. And that is uh, the sort of classic recipe for fascism. Now, you know, I don't want to overstate the case because there are many countries like exactly Poland, uh, Hungary, the Czech Republic, right. that are uh, sort of really uh, moving towards Europe. Uh, but, uh, and, and the case in Russia, of course, is, is, is uh, up for grabs. Uh, uh, it's very much a, a struggle which way it's going to go. Uh, uh, but there are other countries, like for instance... Between Poland. democratic forces and uh, well, how would you characterize the alternative? Well, it's sort of a, 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 um, a new uh, authoritarian regime based on nationalism. Maybe we should start walking through just like the history of the SECA itself uh, just to give people a sense of you know, the real, the hard facts of what we're talking about here. Yeah. What cities does this happen? And maybe, I think, maybe this is a good time to talk about a few examples of the type of art that you uh, outline in your exhibit and your essay that I think, you know, illustrate these phenomena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so the, 
The Soros Center for Contemporary Art Network uh, starts off being called the Soros Foundation Fine Art Documentation Center, and it's a, a little office in Budapest. And uh, and George Soros has, uh, you know, his Open Society Institute, uh, which is now called the Open Society Foundation, is the larger umbrella NGO that is, uh, is, is making this happen. So it's got a base there in Budapest. It's also setting up around that time the Central European University. The, uh, the work of the Soros Foundation uh, archive uh, uh, was essentially to, to do some basic uh, administrative um, backlogging, backlogging of uh, trying to understand what the art of the what, what, what is often called the lost years, the years of the 60s, 70s and 80s what the art that was not getting looked at by socialist realism, uh, so uh, which comes under a number of different titles, unofficial art, dissident art, and we call it just contemporary art. And, uh, and so the, uh, these are, but these are the things that are the unconventional and unorthodox to the outright, you know, anti-governmental and, uh, uh, you know, countercultural. And so um, the, and so the work, the early work of the foundation is quite innocent. Uh, it's just trying to, uh, collect, you know, uh, dossiers and profiles of artists that might have not received any attention because of the kind of work they were making and trying to, uh, you know, give them a platform. And uh, and eventually it, it jumps uh, from, you know, there's something that happened. So that, that, that early iteration uh, exists from 1987. And then around 1990, 91, it changes its name to the Soros Center for Contemporary Art in Budapest. And... Um, and that's a change that's created by a woman named Susie Masoli, who is ultimately the architect of the, the larger network, that, as it comes to be known. And she's the one who has this idea of introducing the, the name contemporary in the, in, uh, in, the, in the title. And uh, it's hard to know, you know, in the details who, you know, the, the Open Society Institute already is existing in, in Hungary and many other places. And it's a uh, it's uh, and it's the precursor to the opening of eventually of a Soros Center of Contemporary Art, and so there is a, in my mind, it's always in the cards probably to do this. The rollout is so fast. Uh, ninety two six centers open, ninety three six more open, ninety five, you know five open, uh, ninety six four open and then 98 the last one in uh, almaty opens almaty kazakhstan and just as a reminder these are in every major capital so we have to think about it like this uh, atlanta new york los angeles chicago and it's and it's that geographic range too if we have to think from almaty kazakhstan to uh to to prague czech republic uh, that 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 width of uh, geography is is greater than the United States, and uh, and it's yeah. definitely uh, twenty major capitals, um, some of which are you know huge huge metropolises. Uh, overnight, they received this asymmetrically powerful institution that essentially was like going to tell them uh, what contemporary art was or what what the path they should follow creatively should be, mm -hmm. uh, because all their systems are in disarray. Uh, yeah. following the fall of the Soviet Union and none of uh, you know the state can't support you know, any longer the the artist union in the same way which was That's technically right. a, a very secure path you know you were paid by the state to yeah. produce work have a studio you would have exhibitions recognition 
Uh, all these things were there for you. And so suddenly the door is open to the possibility of, of a real market, the, the Western market, mm-hmm. and uh, and the potential for global fame. And so the uh, the, the, the appealing thing that uh, these Soros centers offered was not just this archive, because the archiving practice that I mentioned in the beginning is, is, is a template that all of these things end up functioning for. And just to round out that point the 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 the, re, the way the archive is super interesting is that by collecting the histories of the 60s 70s and 80s it essentially is showing through this dissident work the uh the emergence of the uh of the individual the emergence of the individual in the face of the closed society and their desire to function on their own to make their own creative statements and so forth and so in a way by collecting these histories it rationalizes what is then going to happen now in the 90s in the art of the open society which is rampant individualism as an emergent behavioral phenomenon and 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 really in a, in a sanctioned way in a fully sanctioned way and so that's the setting here. Um, the the what's interesting about the centers is not just this collection of data. This is interesting in and of itself, but it's quite benign. It allows Western curators to come into these places and have an easy access point to understanding their art histories, mm-hmm. having an easier connection to understanding the cultural landscapes and so forth. But where this thing really becomes interesting in terms of how we can see it as experiments in social engineering is to look at the uh, curatorial histories. The exhibition histories of these Soros Centers for Contemporary Art, because each of them, and again, there were 20, uh, each of them did what was called an annual exhibition. And these annual exhibitions were highly funded, uh, in some cases, um, having budgets of around $100,000, which in Romania, uh, yes. with the exchange rate of the in, in the exchange with the exchange rate of the dollar in the 90s, yeah. uh, you know, you could you could um, you could buy a pack of cigarettes for 10 cents. And so uh, yeah. to give you a sense of like how hard it would be to actually spend $100,000 to produce a contemporary art exhibition, I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. So these, these places were really uh, so powerful in their ability to invest in the production of art and to create uh, quite, uh, you know, advanced uh, exhibitions. Yeah. Um, what was and, the total? Uh, and, sorry, what was the total amount you said of all these? It was something like, what, $25 million? The $24 million is okay. the what's the number uh, given to what was invested in the Soros Center for Contemporary Art Network. Yeah. Um, but it's worth mentioning and, that, like you said, like in the economies in the early 90s, all of which were like either in free fall or going through sh- shock therapy, had these crazy exchange rates. Like you basically, you could, it's le- it's not as much uh, the, the case today in like the Eastern European countries that don't have the euro but back then i mean even if you were showing up with like a million dollar budget that's like a dump truck full of money in a time when artists can't get money anywhere else so they're kind of it sounds like they're kind of the only game in town and they're like by far the biggest you know game in town by a by a factor of i don't know how much but right like in terms of their financial resources yeah i mean there's other ngos certainly functioning at the same time but this is the main one if we think of the geography and uh power it's uh and 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 the mission you know Mm -hmm. like this is a zealous this is a missionary uh like mission to uh to really create a uh, a unified approach to contemporary art through this network and so um yeah, and, and basically each of these annual exhibitions, and 
remember there's 20 centers. So there's 20 of these annual exhibitions a year. Some of the centers did two exhibition, two annual exhibitions a year and just because they had extra money. That's and, almost and, an um, exhibition every two weeks. I mean, it, yeah, it, assuming yeah. there's space, they're not all in the same day. Like that's a lot, <laughs> you know? It's a lot. And, it's, and it, you know, and it's, and it's technically, it's great. You know, you're like, and, and what's happening in these exhibitions is each of the artists is getting uh, funding for production. So every exhibition that would happen, uh, all the artworks included were often brand new artworks and some of them produced in some of the most advanced media of the time in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, video and editing techniques and uh, technologies that were, you know, like not going to be available for uh, the everyday person for, you know, another decade or something were suddenly at their fingertips. And so all these we're talking about in, in each annual exhibition, there's between 10 and 30 artists. And so that's 10 to 30 brand new artworks sponsored, produced by the Soros Center for Contemporary Art. All of that sounds great. What's wrong with that? No, no big deal. Um, yeah, we love what's, funding the what's arts. What's interesting is, dude, it's so good. It's, but this is a Trojan horse. I, yes. I do a very important thing all the time with this, where I try to, right from the get-go, let's stop calling this art. This is not art. We're using art. As a, as a way to soften your mind and your perception of what this thing is, because who doesn't like a lot of bunch, a bunch of well-funded art in a place that needs it. Uh, but the reality of this is uh, really, we should compare it to the way we use this word cookies to talk about the data gathering that happens uh, online all the time. It's this term cookies. Somehow you're like, Oh yeah, I agree to cookies. Who doesn't like cookies? And, uh, and so by, <laughs> yeah. by calling this art, by calling this art, you're going to let it pass. You know, all these governments are going to let it pass. Yeah, let the artists, you know, it's art. You know, we need art. We, art is going to be uplifting for people. And art's going to be important for us understanding this new paradigm that we're in. Uh, it's the artist who helps paint these pictures of, of reality and of society. But the reality of this is that in many of the, my research focuses on these early years of this thing. So from 92 to 95, when the uh, network is first getting off its uh, uh, off the ground and you have a bunch of these things appear at once, but no one necessarily exactly knows what to do. Many of these curators were not curators. They were dissidents or poets or, or what have you. They were uh, just plucked from thin air because they had a great relationship to open society values. And they were told here, you're going to run a contemporary art center. What's a contemporary art center? What's contemporary art? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just follow the lead, my man. And so they were given a, a manual, a procedures manual That's to right. um, to help understand, you know, the administration and bureaucracy of, of their newfound institution. And in some cases, the real interesting thing of this story is not like, the, you know, to follow the, the trail of what artworks were made in this whole period of these amazing amounts of artwork. So if we get in, we say 20 centers, 10 to 30 artworks made in each annual exhibition, you're looking at up to around 600 artworks a year. None of those artworks are technically remembered. Nobody remembers any artwork that can, comes out of the SCCA, but what people remember are the exhibitions. And this we should look at as the collectivization of the energy of the creative community and it's directionalized in a very particular way. So in the work of the curator, you can see that the artist's community as a whole is put in a direction mm -hmm. and they're asked to produce certain kinds of work that, you know, is then put through the prism of their creative practice. But these artworks that are being made for particular exhibitions that I see as my case study exhibitions, 
these are exhibitions that are exhibiting uh, the, the most advanced and the most advanced forms of socially engaged practice as we know it. And, uh, and this is art of activism. This is art mm-hmm. that's used to perform acts of hygiene in society mm-hmm. uh, to help kind of clean up a broken bureaucracy and vulnerable civic systems, but also to help understand the vulnerabilities of, of you know, um, morals and behavior and, uh, yeah. or, you know, sensitivities around monuments. And this is I what's mean, called the de-Sovietization, yes, de-Sovietization the de- process. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, forgive me for interjecting, but it's just, it's glaring. In no, my, no. It's glaring in my brain right now that the way you're describing it has an almost like identical political valence that the closed society art system had, except Perhaps in some degrees, the closed society was more open. Uh, I mean, o- open in the sense of you are going to do art that falls within these certain frameworks that supports uh, supports socialism, supports the people and positive values and the state and whatever else, you know, kind of going on. <laughs> the These Soros centers come along. And I mean, I think the chief difference is they, one could say, lie or are misleading about the fact that they are bringing people into a kind of system that has an ideological valence or direction uh, or limits to it because it's all done under the guise of you're free, you're an individual, there's no bureaucracies anymore. I mean, you also pointed out in your essay, I wrote down this quote, uh, when you were talking about the open call to artists which uh, I think finally you said in one of the cities, like they didn't get any responses. Then they had to set up a workshop to like teach people how to do new media and then like resubmit the open call. So they're kind of like, they're really doing a lot of legwork, like generating a scene that doesn't exist. But you also wrote that it was the hallmark of democracy, transparency, and creativity writ large. And it was meant to expand the conventional parameters for who saw themselves as a visual artist. At the same time, it weeded out art and artists that were not in line with SCCA ideology that were prominent in the eyes of the state or promoted cultural narratives of what one might refer to as, quote, conservative avant-garde. So right there, I mean... That's often, I feel like there's often this massive erasure talking about uh, post-Soviet, post-communist Eastern European countries where, like, what if you were an artist that was in the artist union and, like, let's just assume for the sake of argument, you were not a uh, disgusting, like, Bolshevik, simping, communist party stooge and you made interesting artwork, but you you also stayed in your lane and didn't, you know, make art calling for the overthrow of the government. The whole communist society collapses. uh, Your artist union goes away. Now, you may have been a prominent artist. You may have well been very talented. You might have something to say about the collapse of communism. But if you're not in line with the Soros Center ideology, then you're not going to get selected for this exhibit. So right away, I mean, almost sounds a little bit like a, uh, what's the word? Blacklist, right? You know, I mean, in a, this is a reversal of this is just an inversion more than it is a real like shift into something new and free. It's there's a new sheriff in town, except they're using more indirect, more sublimated forms of censorship and grooming like artists like within a certain political framework under the guise of it not being uh, of it being somehow. Uh, well, it's I guess it's. 
I don't know if they would expressly say it's post-political, though I'm sure some people were throwing around terms like that. But, you know, this is the end of history moment and stuff like that. So, I mean, it, it sells a, I, I could imagine if you're an, a young artist kind of on the, the outskirts in the early 90s, this sounds very tempting, right? To believe in something like this. It, it's a good story, right? It's a very well, the- alluring story. There is a couple of things that happen here. There's going to be this situation of that character, that profile you described, is going to see this potential. Because what's what's really important also to say is there, firstly, I don't think is ill uh, intentions in how the FCCA and its participants set out to do what they do. I don't think it was believed that artists were being manipulated i think like there's there's a ways in which we have to accept that the artists should do whatever they need to do to keep their practice going to butter their bread to feed their kids and artists kind of put themselves up for different kinds of exploitation all the time you know when they participate with developments of technology and so forth but there is this profile of artists that you described who would have you know had great success in the closed society and suddenly is making conservative work in this open society uh, framework and uh, and they're going to drop their paintbrush and pick up a computer mouse uh, to, in order to try to fit in they're going to completely in a way abandon their culture and their practice uh, to in the hopes of becoming this an aspirational version of the of the future that the that's all being hoped for and but there is this important reality that in the artist union there were i think everyone you know was allowed to through the academic path be an artist and be eventually receiving some kind of recognition for their practice not that it was completely uh you know democratic thing but you know if you played the game and everyone seemed to play the game you were going to you know have your place in line Whereas in the open society and the open call system, uh, while the open call is a kind of mirage of democracy and your ability to participate, there is this uh, then selection process, which is the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. and 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 there does become a limited pool to pick from. Uh, the open society actually becomes a, an elite club of sometimes the same artists chosen over and over in places like Kiev or in uh, um you know, where you know any. If you look at any of the exhibition histories, it checks out immediately. You can see, oh, this was these were the only ten contemporary artists that were worth developing, or something. Mm-hmm. You know, while many artists might have tried to participate, um, you, there are stories of people who were like, I tried to do two shows and I didn't like this what it was doing for me, and I went back to painting. Mm-hmm. And they might have then not gotten any further recognition through the open society open calls or source center open calls. And so there, there does become this strange way in which the gatekeepers actually narrow uh, the pool from which we can say our artists are developing from or emerging from sure. uh, and, and, and in a way that's even more limiting than what we consider the closed society to be. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, like, it makes perfect like sense. The, the, I mean, I'm, I'm fond of thinking about that because we've been so inundated the last, like, basically my entire life of this. I mean, it permeates everything. And, and in some degrees, it's like, it's not because Soros and the Open Society did it. This is just like dominant Western thinking of like neoliberal thinking. But just the idea that, yeah, everything was oppressive. Everything sucked. Nothing was good about like living in the Soviet Union. And like I've talked to people who lived in the Soviet Union and then like came here in the 90s when everything collapsed. And 
I just, you know, it, it's always more nuanced than I think we are generally taught. And certainly that gets reinforced like day in and day out on our news today because now Russia is once again, you know, they might as well be the Soviet Union and the bad guys and something like an artist union. It's only and oftentimes like when they go to look for an authoritative voice, it's one of these like 1980s dissident people that have nothing but shit to talk about how awful oppressive it was. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to the episodes I did with Jimmy Fallon Gong last year about Soviet underground rock music. And um, I, I listened to uh, some of the, 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 the what's her name? Uh, shit, I was just listening Joanna to Joanna Stingray. Uh, <laughs> Bingo. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so that's an interesting that might come up later, too, because there actually is a Soros connection to that story. But that was a really interesting window into like it's not exactly the same, but to be a kind of underground musician in the Soviet Union and to be even like a rock band or something. I think the normal Western assumption would be either that like rock and roll just didn't exist or like you get sent to gulag if you play rock or something. It was like it wasn't like that. It was just that if you're playing music that was too far out there, you couldn't be in the musicians union and be on Melodia. And, but if you stayed in your lane and whatever, like you'd have a very comfortable career, but also because everybody had to have a job that a lot of these like underground rock musicians, they didn't have like the financial precarity that like an American, you know, indie rock musician would have. They'd have like a job at like a sociology Institute and like play on the weekends. And it like wasn't, mm. or Victor Soy was like a uh, shoveled coal in a, you know, boiler room in an apartment building, uh, even after he was famous. <laughs> and I mean, when I hear about as like a sort of, uh, precarious artist type person in America today. I, I hear about that and I'm like, damn, I wish I could walk down to the job office and just get some random job and then like do my art on the weekends and, you know, do all this other stuff. Like there's a lot of aspects of it that actually sound like, like really like, like was it really all that bad? Like, you know, it's like banning art that says we should overthrow the socialist government that gives everybody free healthcare and education. Like, I'm not saying, you know, look, look, I, I'm not going to like lecture like a Polish person about they totally hated living under communism. But I don't know, looking back on it today, it's like those societies had certain things that even Western societies like America still don't have to this day, even in, in regards to the arts, even though there were these guardrails of like, we don't want you to go too far in a certain direction. So I don't know. It's just, it's very interesting because then when the nineties happen, everyone dances on the graves of the Eastern Bloc countries and the Soros, like it's Soros is a, a, a kind of a, a vanguard of promoting this, the way that Eastern Europeans should process their recent past and how they should like metabolize right. it. And it's all through this, like this neoliberal kind of prism that just it's like open society good closed society bad so you can you can break every phenomenon into that very simplistic binary and it's like i haven't read popper so maybe he's a genius and i'm just not enlightened but it always struck me as like this is a very convenient philosophical ideology to adhere to if you're a billionaire you know investor weaponized philanthropist kind of person you know that uh any everything open neoliberal free trade like this i mean it all kind of sinks together. But of course, this is the cuddly, aspirational, optimistic kind of version of, you know, neoliberal capitalism. You know, this is the 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 window dressing that goes on top of it uh, to make the medicine go down smoother and and also to shape like the ontological shape, the ontologies that like these people are living in in these former communist countries um, to make them compatible with 
the change in like the relations of production that are like affecting all of their lives. Cause I don't know. It also strikes me as, I don't know, watching some of the stuff you gave me, really interesting one that is kind of proto SCCA, but the media were with us that was made just a few months after uh, Ceausescu was killed and overthrown in Romania. And there is such a, a kind of atmosphere of excitement. And also that like it's amazing how fast the communist status quo was like just vaporized you know, almost overnight, faster than anybody could have anticipated it to. And then this kind of just very optimistic assumption that like, we're in the new good world now, like we're with the wet, everything's great. And of course, now we're in 2023. And things don't seem so simple. But I forgot I was rambling. I forgot where I was going with that. But um, well, uh, if I could just follow on some, the last thing you were saying about, you know, how the this relates to the deregulation and of, of society and the aspirational path that Europe's being put on and Eastern Europe's being put on. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's two things that I think you can see in this. Uh, Cause I, I, myself, I think was getting lost in the last bit I was saying, but this thing should be seen like a prism as a, as a thing that even though we're talking about art and the, the cultural production of these places and all that's cool. Uh, let's look at it as a prism that allows us to see the totality of the NGO movement and the totality of, of the implementation of neoliberalism. Within all of this art production, you can see different ways in which society is being deregulated, mm-hmm. uh, different ways in which it's being put under new kinds of control, and uh, and the, and all this kind of hygiene that's being performed in the name of uh, democracy. And so you can see that actually through these social engaged practices that are new practices, ultimately, that are yeah. these artists are being kind of asked to perform uh, almost like uh, aestheticizations of the NGO and of neoliberal interests. Yeah. Or if not, just perform legwork and uh, be foot soldiers to understanding where these weaknesses in society are. And yes. then the other thing is the, um, the, the way in which then the artist is asked to imagine their identity, this way in which identitarianism actually comes out of this, it's a kind of a permitted form of identitarianism because the SCCA and the Open Society was in general kind of quite fearful of, of neo-nationalism, nationalism in the sense that uh, the, the, that was going to uh, either uh, be a, a fascist you know, um, extremism that was going to come out of this newly independent state or uh, a, a weak state that was going to lean back towards the, the closed society of, of, you know, maybe partnering, cozying back up with Russia. Yeah. And, and so th- these are the two political extremes of communism and fascism where the NGO saw themselves as anti-political. And, uh, and that's a, that's a kind of a, of course, a, a really clever a way to deeply political uh, uh, stance is to be. But they're just a, they're just a third part. Yeah. Yes. Radical. Well, they're, they're ra- well radical centrists, maybe right. That's exactly right. That's mm-hmm. I mean they're neoliberal basically. Yeah. Yeah. I and, mean, uh, but it's like even the even the centrist neoliberals can in a sense be radical or I, I don't know if I'd say revolutionary or counter-revolutionary, but, you know, just because you're, you're sort of a, a hardcore centrist, uh, often we associate that with being like measured and calm and stuff. But no, I think in the case of somebody like uh, George Soros and, and people kind of, you know, uh, of his mindset, no, you could be in this period, especially, I mean, this is sort of revolutionary bourgeois liberal bourgeois neoliberalism, like taking over it also i don't know if this is too far but 
you know, for people that say, oh, no, it couldn't have been that organized. I mean, it sounds a little bit like a cultural revolution. Like, I mean, I think if you flip it on its opposite side and you say, well, this is what the Bolsheviks do when they take over a country. They start Mm. sponsoring art. They take over the media. They start teaching people new theories in school. Like, it's literally the same. It's just you're plugging out, you're taking out, like, Marx and you're putting in, like, Popper. And, like, you know, you're, you're, you're switching out the inputs a little bit, but it's, like, the same kind of cultural revolution. It's the type of thing when there's an overthrow and then the new regime is trying to legitimize itself ideologically. And of course, art is always going to be a component of that. Like art always reflects the kind of socio-political regime in which, whether it's fighting against it or whether it's, you know, reifying it, it's always engaged with it one way or another, right? Yeah, and then the identity, what is the identity that comes out of this? It's a it's a aspirational pro-EU globalist identity of an artist who's not wanting to be seen in that backwards way not wanting to be seen just as a simple conservative Romanian artist, but a pro-European, you know, I'm, I'm a part of this larger, what we, you know, in the negative, but, you know, actual sense of the word globalist, a uh, way in which we think of the, this uh, globalization uh, as a, as it impacts our sense of self. So breaking down all these relationships one had to culture, tradition, and so forth, you know, or at least the artist was asked to, to, to try to use those things as a, as a conceptual material. And what's interesting is like, this is the stuff that the West ultimately looks for is these artists who kind of fetishize their Romanianness or their Ukrainianness mm-hmm. for that Western gaze. And yet they're trying to also pivot themselves as a global contemporary artist. So there's this, there's this yeah. funny way in which they become the, this, this shill of, of, of a globalization of art. I feel I like if you listen, words, if you listen to like NPR every other week, you're going to get some kind of like weird, like ethereal turbo folk band from Ukraine that is like, you know, they're very like rooted in like a village peasant culture, blah, blah, blah. But like, they're also like very connected to like academia and they're like touring the West. Like it's, it's just, it's a whole template now. I mean, or like, like pussy riot, my God, that. That's a that's almost like the loudest example you could think of, but but no pussy riot. I mean, yeah, pussy riot's kind of a like they are kind of an example of that. The other thing that kind of undergirds all that that you mentioned uh, in your essay is that the Open Society Institute hedged an enormous bet on the internet and telecom infrastructures of these regions while all this art stuff was going on. Every country was a different case study in terms of the breadth of the tech infrastructure that was implemented, who had access and how access was given. Today, Romania has one of the fastest internets in the world, thanks to fiber optic networks originally laid by the foundation. Now, that was interesting. I think you followed that up by pointing out that like the general uh, kind of assumption or the the kind of language people would use that were involved the SECA was they were trying to get these Eastern countries uh, and art scenes to catch up to the West. But I think you pointed out an interesting kind of uh, inversion of that, which is that actually in some of these countries, because of like the cutting edge, you know, uh, internet infrastructure, I think, didn't you say like like cable internet was even like, pioneered it was like tested in romania for the in like bucharest for the first time but the idea that in some ways this was almost like a bleeding edge frontier where groups like the open society were testing out how is the internet going to impact 
you know, art and culture and all these other things, like even before it had saturated places like America, like to that extent. Is that right? I mean, that's totally right. There's a whole other program. I mean, with the NGO of the Open Society Institute, you're looking at uh, all these different ways in which they're deregulating and, and creating new infrastructures. So, and that's in education and healthcare and uh, political lobbying and or political science or whatever. And one of the things they have, in addition to contemporary art, is the internet program, which was set up by this guy Jonathan Pizer, yes. who's the uh, chief te- chief technology officer for the Open Society Institute. And this guy basically was almost having free reign to. Uh, like a cowboy, like a, a wizard, cowboy wizard, go out into Eastern Europe and and lay out these infrastructures and experiment with really advanced internets. And and when we when we say they're laying the infrastructure, we're exactly we're saying put down the fiber optic cable. They set up sat networks. They created all different manners of of networks in these places to set up the internet. And and these yeah. weren't totally public internets. These were semi-public internets that you had to access through the foundation, through the uh, Soros centers and so forth. But the way they saw the internet as a communication technology is for me, again, another prism, a prism that allows us to see the art thing a different way. They, they saw it as an uncontrollable communication technology, a thing that if you put that out there in a closed society, then you are going to create the at least the pathways for irreversible change and that's what you know of course is happening in iran right now with uh elon musk setting up different uh, uh, uh internet potentials that the iranian government's not going to be able oh, to control they kind of all stuff. know mm-hmm. exactly these are our basic tactics to of course liberating the people um but what they all are in the the aims of is of of course you know revolution and collapse of these governments to make them to create pro western you know uh, governments that are then going to you know operate as they need to. But the the internet thing is interesting because you know ultimately once you start to cross that with the artist and and looking at it through new media and and so forth, the artists are going to be these people who can help. Now, artists are very creative in not just their ability to create images, but also to create a DIY understandings of systems. Mm. Artists are going to be the first point of contact that uh, all organizations dealing with technology, you know, Oculus Rift, different uh, apps, you know, and so forth, AR, uh, augmented reality, and so forth. They're all going to ask the artist, hey, man, well, you want to you uh, simp for our product? And, and in doing so, they're going to help uh, create shortcuts and find bugs they're going to be bug chasers ultimately for these companies yeah uh to help understand the 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 pitfalls of how the technology is set up and create better systems better operating systems that's such a and good that's, point uh, and uh, it's always artists artists are the first yeah. one to call for any new technology well you and, and you, it's and it seems really cool yeah yeah well you pointed out that i mean you dwelled a little bit about the term avant-garde which is often associated with the secA and how you know if you translate the french avant-garde is a military term it's like the tip of the spear it's like your special operators or you know your leading cavalry force and i think it's really good the way you contextualize art like even for people that aren't very up on you know art history the art world etc and they might wonder especially in today's world where it's all i don't know uh, social media apps and tv movies whatever you know like what role does the art world serve isn't it just a bunch of rich people running around blah 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 but no i think that it serves a very 
very powerful and potent like social purpose, like particularly for like the forming of like the superstructure in that you're right. Like it is the avant-garde where like the newest cutting edge ideas are played around with in a kind of loose way, like looser than having it kind of plugged into any other, you know, more like specific type of field where new patterns of thinking and framing can emerge, like new ontologies can kind of develop out of, you know, putting things in juxtaposition and things like that. So I think it serves a very valuable like social political kind of purpose and whatever their exact plan was, they seem to have been very dialed into it, the SCCA. And, uh, well, and you, you have to just to, sorry, just add one other thing. You have to look at it the same way you see the internet thing. It's an, uh, it's a communication technology. It's an uncontrolled communication technology. And, And art is like this analog to the internet. It's digital in terms of, we don't exactly know where this is going to go. Let's throw a bunch of fucking gas on it and give it the, the the freedom to go where it possibly can go. And what's so interesting about these hedges is that, of course, the Internet is something that uh, Soros bet huge on uh, early on, and as well as the euro. And, and he's, of course, now the first person who's trying to create restrictions because he doesn't appreciate the place that it's taken us to. It's actually turned in on his open society and created cannibalistic contradictions to the ways in which he thought society was going to go with the freedom to it's this this the paradox of tolerance ultimately you can't uh, have an open society uh having things that undermine the open society uh and so (laughs) well yeah uh, yeah i mean funny how that works when you set up a system like you realize that letting people undermine the system is is bad and like then you have to take measures to do that you know, sort of like the Soviet bloc did. I mean, but I mean, it's just, it's kind of like Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man sometimes with George Soros is that like, he's, he's so gassed up on thinking that he's developed this like totally new system of managing society, but it sometimes comically resembles the one that he like spent his whole life, like raging against, um, just in a more like covert cloaked kind of way. Um, I mean, you also wrote uh, when you interviewed Oct- what Octavian Isanu, who is one of the mm-hmm. uh, one of the curators, I think, for the SCCA, because you wrote about like the manual that was sent out to all these centers. You interviewed a bunch of people, and nobody could tell you who authored it, right? Yeah, yeah. No and I, he said in his recent book that this vagueness was an effort to maintain ambivalence about authorship and not give direct credit to any one author who performed the sacred act of selection who came up with this revolutionary concept. According to Isanu, quote, in the Popperian open society, impersonal institutional mechanisms and procedures rather than individuals are to enact key decisions. Well, that, once again, that feels paradoxical. Like, is it, because the the exoteric propaganda of everything the open society stands for is that it's all about individuals, right? But then, like, behind the scenes, it's like, no, 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 it has to be impersonal. Isn't that the exact critique of, like, the faceless Marxist, like, dictatorial state that is, you know, these mechanisms that we're all being crushed? It's so, it's hilarious how, like, contradictory and kind of, like, hypocritical it is. Well, and you want to go dark with that guy, Asanu. I mean, he's an amazing person. He's, I've interviewed him twice. I interviewed him after having read his book, not telling him about what I was doing in Poland. You know, I was in this kind of COVID, uh, you know, 
radicalized academic space. I'm just like, I'm interviewing as many people as possible to create an oral history archive, all the while preparing this, you know, very um, controversial exhibition to, to help prove some uh, um, points that I was trying to make. And, uh, and Asanu is, is, he's just come out with a book as well. And, uh, and it's a very important book. And it's going to be the book that is the first point of call when anyone tries to approach this subject academically. It's a book that's too expensive for you or I to buy. Mm. It's about $150 on, on Amazon. But I bet you fucking money, this thing is in every single library of every single university of every single art school now <laughs> in multiple copies. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this book, the interesting thing about this book is it's a whitewash. It's literally a whitewash in, uh, in so many ways where... Firstly, he does not state that he ran an SCCA, uh, an SCCA Kishinau. He does not explicitly state a conflict of interest that he comes from this system, that he was the director of the SCCA Kishinau, and then before that was working for the Arts and Culture Department of the Open Society Institute Moldova. He nowhere in his book mentions that. Wow. He is this academic who is trying to observe a cultural phenomena that happened to happen. And, and he really puts it in these vague terms uh, to try, try to help us understand we can't tell history the same way that we have always expected history to be told. And, and really, and, and in his narrative, tries to undermine the normal uh, linear history techniques that we're used to in trying to understand something like the Soros Network. He outright tries to, you know, in a way, gaslight his reader into not looking at this story the way you should look at it, which is in the details, in the chronology, and in the, you know, in the actual kind of intent, and in the, the all, all of the things that we should yeah. be doing to analyze this story. He has created a book that's going to be the institutionalized voice around this subject oh that God. essentially tells us to not do that and, uh, and doesn't state and doesn't state who he is and where he comes from. It's a it's a phenomenal thing i mean I've, I've analyzed all kinds of contradictions in his book but um That's but he's really the guy who yeah but he's also the voice who essentially is telling us that this thing was just merely trying to catch up these societies uh he's always the person who's putting us in this tone of like oh the poor eastern european caboose you know mm -hmm. trying to catch up with the the engine of the european union and uh and so my my thesis is essentially uh, exact opposite of his in in many ways where I am arguing that Eastern Europe and when we look at in internet infrastructures and this new form of social engaged practice, it by leaps and bounds more advanced than what's happening in the technically or organic West. God, that's fascinating. And like many such cases with people who are affiliated with the open society, I think we'll, we'll maybe uh, touch on that shortly. Um, I'm thinking about the Fiona Hill um, <laughs> congressional like testimony that uh you included in your exhibit uh where she's asked if she's a soros shill but uh maybe we'll save that for the boogeyman section but just just to move through a couple more things like uh yeah. about the secca first of all you mentioned bill McAllister, who is the, you called him an upper echelon fixture in the network with the title of cultural policy director and mazzoli answered to him and both mazzoli and uh callan dan I don't know if I say that right. Um, yeah. They both referred to McAllister jokingly, not jokingly, as a British spy. So there we go. LOL, I'm MI6 uh, strikes yet again. Did you find anything else more about Bill McAllister and his background that might suggest that maybe he was not jokingly a British spy? Lots of people, when they see that name, 
they they kind of see it in a very particular way. It's you know for Susie, the most you know advanced person in the system under McAllister to say that is huge. And for Colin Dan, who's beneath Susie to say that is also huge. They say it independently. And both of them said it to me. And McAllister is is a is an, uh, an enigma, you know, in this whole thing. He's he's uh, when I interviewed him, he just is like, oh, you know, I was riding a bicycle around Europe and I ran into George Soros at an opening oh in my Budapest, God. and he's oh and he says, hey, why don't you become the head of this thing? And he's like, what do you want me to do? And <sighs> and George is like, I, I don't know. And Bill's like, I don't know either. I'll just do it. And then this we sounds, just do it. And then, this sounds like like every story from like the sixties where like Ken Kesey just like happened to run into like a billionaire who like funded his LSD, you know, like shit like that. Like, oh, totally. it's so trippy, man. Like life's crazy. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Interesting. But you know, Bill is the guy who uh gets the battleship. He's the one oh, who yeah, secures yeah. the battleship. Let can we let's talk and, about the uh, battleship real quick. Cause that, that yeah, I, I think yeah. you were very fascinated by it. Uh this is there were a few exhibits. One was called Alchemic Surrender, right? And uh yeah. can you tell us about yeah, what was this exhibit on this Ukrainian battleship? So this is the second Soros Center for Contemporary Art. Kiev annual exhibition. It's the second annual exhibition that happens in 1994, and uh, and it's curated by Marta Kutzma, who is uh, up until about six months ago is the dean of arts at Yale, Ooh. and so that that gives you a real sense of the the ladder, uh, the pyramid structure, and if we had to put these people in an Al Qaeda map, you know, the <laughs> influence they continue to maintain mm -hmm. is is enormous, and so Marta is uh, the only non. Uh, local Soros Center director. She's actually brought in from New York, I believe. And uh, in the work she's doing, you know, she's essentially, I think, Kiev, for the Open Society in general, uh, and for NGOs in general, and its entire and the entire history of this place as a as a battleground for the wrestling of power, east and west, and red and blue, and so forth. Ukraine has always been in this place that we currently find it in, in just varying guises. And, uh, and so for the Soros Center, uh, it, it was um, in practical terms very challenging to, I think, do the, the cultivation work. There was only really a small handful of artists that Marta continually worked with. And Marta would bring in a lot of outside artists uh, from the West. But Alchemic Surrender is arguably the greatest exhibition she's ever made. And it's an exhibition that happens not in Kiev, but on a live battleship in the Crimean Sea and in, in, in Sevastopol. Sevastopol. And this is a and this is a naval uh, uh, a, a naval a, a, a naval area that has been recently demilitarized or recently opened up where press can go in. But before it was like a secret military base that held the Soviet uh, Navy. And this is a navy that's now just been recently broken up. Uh, so you have a uh, this this boat's a Ukrainian uh, uh, boat, a uh, battleship, and the next boat's the, a Russian battleship, and they've now got two different flags on them. And all these tensions, despite it being 1994 and you know an aspirational point in time, there are arguable uh, tensions that are going to be very palpable in in military circumstances like that. And uh, and Marta through Bill and McAllister, was given carte blanche access to this battleship, which is ours 
hours drive from Kiev, so nowhere near the art scene that she's technically responsible for cultivating. Mm -hmm. And she's going to make an intervention on this battleship. She's going to turn this battleship into a raw material uh, for a site and setting and, uh, and, and raw material for artists to make work from. And, uh, and it's not just the boat itself, but it's actually the crew. On top of it, they were given complete uh, access to the crew um, via the admiral of this battleship, uh, or the admiral of the navy. And so, it's important to say though that this is an exhibition that only lasted for two days, and this is the highly funded uh, annual exhibition of the Soros Center for Contemporary Art. And so, for this thing to only last for two days is very curious. And it's again also happening, you know, hundreds of miles from Kiev. So who of that local art world is actually benefiting from this as a cultural event when it's only lasting for two days and it's in a, a, a military zone, a recently demilitarized zone. Press yeah. was not allowed to go there up until, you know, just in around this time that this is happening. Wow. And so, um, and what happens on this boat is fascinating. They, uh, essentially use the boat as a, as a site to produce art, but it's not just, any art the art is ultimately very desecrational it's it's looking uh in a way what uh, it's the the greatest use of this idea of weaponized aesthetics that i can think of when we think of what are they trying to do what are they trying to accomplish this is really in a way a form of uh, the the visual moment of shock therapy and of cultural voodoo of of what the soros uh network is trying to accomplish in its work to uh destabilize power structures and create you know new perceptions of, of where those power structures can go or who's in charge of these power structures now. And, yeah. um, and, and so there's, uh, there's things that are just outright bizarre that are happening on the boat where one artist, Ilya Chichkan, he brings on, according to Bill McAllister, two dozen cad baby cadavers, mutant baby cadavers and installs them in the, uh, the ship's Ports. portal. Yeah, the ship's ports, the, the little circular windows, yeah. like almost like in a uh, like an aquarium fashion. You have this floating mutant baby there. Um, I've seen documentation of just a couple, two dozen sounds like a lot to me. But I'm just going were on. Were these supposed stuff. to be real? They were real. They were from a museum wow. of, uh, of of human specimens. Oh wow! That uh, Ilya Ch Chichkan was able to bring down to uh, to Sevastopol. Yeah, and then. Um, but the real crowning achievement of this is this artwork called uh, Voices of Love by Arsen Savadov and, yes. and Georgi Shevchenko. I watched um, that, yeah. Yeah, and this is such a, you know, this if anybody's going to remember any one artwork from this entire network, it's going to be this one. This is really the most incredible artwork where you see the boat turned into uh, just this battleground of aesthetics and ideas and and it's a, it becomes a theater stage for a, a ballet, ultimately, a, a real epic ballet of uh, artists who are, you know, doing, you know, what, what is arguably quite controversial, you know, queer uh, performance uh, in ballet costumes. Yeah. Uh, using the crew, in, instrumentalizing the crew to, to do their bidding in terms of like carrying the, the you know fetishizing the the objects of the boat the the features mm -hmm. of the boat and carrying things and in in very pointless absurd ways crawling so inside like, the kind of uh twirling i don't know what i don't even know what it is but yeah like doing all kinds of things the thing that jumped out at me the most especially with what's going on today was the one shot of the guys that are sitting on this like rotating cylinder in ball in ballet tutus and one of them is cradling two like die cast models of 
Nazi fighter planes from World War II mm. with iron crosses on them, which, like, you know, <laughs> if I was a Russian, maybe I'd get a little triggered. But, it, you know, it's playing with that, like, that that hot-button imagery of, like, uh, you know, you, you couldn't show something that was, like, Nazi and maybe certain context before that. And it's kind of mishmashing all these. It's, it's very, like you said, it's a very like queer coded kind of like a uh, performative art thing, but then they're like cradling these Nazi airplanes. Like it's, it's, I think you're right to say it desecrates this almost ritual militarized uh, space, you know, in, in, and it feels very political. Now you also talked about how, like after this was done, they also put up a white flag, right? Uh, Kuzma, put up a white flag, which you point yeah, this, out. This is huge. This is yeah. huge. This is huge because Marta, Marta basically as an artwork on its own, Marta, you know, as a curator comes in and raises 12 white flags all around the battleship, which is essentially, you know, playing with the idea of the surrender flag and, mm-hmm. and, and common in today's terms, that's what we call a false flag. When you, when you misuse the white flag, your intentions are to not surrender you're misusing the surrender flag. You are, that is literally where we get the idea of the false flag. Uh, it's yeah. the misuse of that. To, and and the, when you misuse a surrender flag, according to the folklore, it's uh, the pirates would do that. They mm-hmm. would raise the white flag, their enemy would come close and then they'd fire on them. Mm-hmm. And it was a really inappropriate um, form of uh, seamanship. And so Marta is doing this as an artwork, you know, so she's, she's claiming these actions uh, easily as art. And, and this is, but this is full Trojan horsing, you know, using the art to kind of infiltrate these circumstances and perform these desecrational, but quite sacred actions. I mean, it literally is this oscillation of desecrating, becoming an act of consecration. When we think of the ritual behaviors that are taking place and the, the destabilizations and the recreations of, of of hierarchies and power and uh, desecrating of symbols, but to create new symbols, new art symbols from it. There's, mm-hmm. there's something about it that's, that is no, that is we will find easy ways to contextualize it as art. There's so much easy jargon we could throw on that as art. But if you put that through the, uh, the, the prism of anthropology, we're really looking at some amazing tribal behaviors that are uh, creating sacred space. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And even though, as you pointed out, this was like hours away from Kiev, it was only going on for two days. It doesn't really feel like it was actually set up to be observed, you know, in the flesh by real people. But you say it got a big photo spread in the New York Times, right? Those are the only people that came to the show is the press. And that was another big thing about the SCCA money um, that would they would always have tons of money to bring in journalists. And, uh, and in this case, they brought in a New York Times photographer and a writer. And these, we can argue, are probably the only real people that saw this show. The show, again, only lasted for two days. It was arguably, I, I think it's a, it's a misunderstanding to call it an art exhibition when we, when we think about the terms that it's operating on. It's far away from the art world it was meant to function in. There probably is no art world in Sevastopol. And, uh, and when we think of the purpose of it being to desecrate a military structure in the name of art uh, and then have the New York Times there, uh, the purpose of this thing is to ultimately show the power of Western art in a, in a transitioning uh, former closed society. Uh, it is ultimately purely a PR coup. 
a PR tactic, yeah. well, the way in which art is being used in this case. Well, again, it brings to mind um, the infamous uh, performance art stunts of Pussy Riot, you know, 20 years later, where the, the thing that kicked off their whole celebrity in the West was they went in and desecrated an Orthodox church you know, wearing ski masks and like jumped on the altar and sang a song about Putin. So very similar. I mean, that was that was unambiguously, I think, both intended and interpreted in Russia as a provocative political act. But they still were using kind of this same thing of uh, like they could always say to a Western audience, we just make art. And everyone goes, mm, wow, you're so brave. Like, you know, and, and doesn't yeah. think about like the deeper things going on. It also, uh, there's another quote I pulled from your essay kind of related to that, where you talk about the artist contract uh, from the SECA Moldova. And you said it stipulates that funding cannot be used for creating political influence, propaganda purposes, for interfering with a democratic election, legal processes, lobbying, or for promoting a particular political agenda. This contract is a great way to protect the network if anyone should audit their intentions in the future. In this way, the artist has been contractually advised to not make a political artwork, but instead to create a political artwork. No one can stop the free will of the people. And you say, getting access to desecrate a live battleship, exercising monuments, exposing cracks, accelerating change. These are very avant-garde political gestures. There is an aggressively political intention. But then there is this contract that says otherwise... So I thought that that was a great observation as well. Like, I, I can't believe that they have you sign a contract that says, like, you're not promoting anything political. I'm sure if you said something that, like, the Soviet Union wasn't that bad, or like, I miss it, uh, that would be considered political. But if you're, you know, endorsing the Popperian vision of, like, the transnational neoliberal subject, that's not political. So it's just art. Very interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's. I think there's a lot of very smart PR games happening throughout this whole thing in terms of how it's packaged for perception management. Uh, just on a on this logistical level, when you know, yeah, what happens in Minsk, Belarus, when they raid the Open Society offices? You know, they have to. You know, one. You know, there's there's all kinds of ways that these these groups are trying to organize themselves in a way that the government can't say you were doing this. And we didn't we didn't want the artists to do this. We said, don't do this. Right. But then the open calls, they're telling them to do this. So it's like the artist is then put in this funny place. It's so there's this then the triangulation here is there's the contract, the open call. There's so, so first the open call as, mm -hmm. is telling you to do this. The contract where you get the money tells you not to do this. And then the press release, which is the only thing anyone ever gets to see, the way in which that's publicly presented to the, you know, the, you know, the public and where public record, the only public record we have is with the press releases, really. It says that the artist wanted to do this. These are naturally occurring phenomena that were in the loins of the creative, you know, practice. And so there's, it's, it's all kinds of, you know, public relations games that are happening through this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is sophisticated. It's like sophisticated sort of information warfare or uh, ta tactical media, as you call it. Philanthropy for you is more rewarding than anything you do. Uh, well, I've got great reservations about philanthropy. I actually... Uh, I really uh, think that uh, uh, charity is a very corrupting activity, and it is so. 
in, even in my own foundations, and I'm struggling against it all the time. Where does the uh, corruption come from? Well, first of all, you know, you, you, you corrupt the people that you give money to. Uh, because you don't you don't teach them self-reliance, no. but you teach them to d depend on you. You depend. Uh, you teach them dependence rather than interdependence. That's right. So you make them. Uh, uh, they become objects of charity, yes. which I mean we avoid. Uh, but then it's very corrupting to the giver, because uh, people suck up to him. Uh, people yes. will tell him what they, people when they go to a foundation, they they tell uh, the foundation what the foundation wants to hear. And then when they get the money, they do with it what they want to do. And the two are not the same. Does it cause you to want to pull back from philanthropy because you believe that it might not be? Uh, no, but uh, I've got, uh, I must say, that I got sucked into something that uh, I knew uh, was full of paradoxes and contradictions. Maybe now's a good time, maybe just to talk about Susie Mazzoli, because she's really a driving force of actually setting up a lot of these SCCAs, right? And you had a chance to actually spend time with her and interview her, right? Yeah, I've interviewed her a number of times. I okay. Two times on the phone, and then I spent a week at her house with a film crew. I got her whole life story on camera. Okay, she, her biography, the things you wrote about her, very fascinating to me, and I'm sure to uh, all SJ listeners. But, well, first of all, very interesting. She's pivotal in, like, setting up this entire network and then she has like a bizarre falling out in the, in the late 90s, right? Where she gets unceremoniously fired from working with like the open society, the SECA and the open society and seems to have some kind of very like painful acrimonious break with them. And she kind of just shoots off into like a totally different trajectory in life. Do you have you gotten any clarity on exactly what happened that led to her getting kicked out? Uh, yeah, you know, she, I've heard multiple stories. I, I'll kind of try to ask as many people as I can what they've heard about why Susie was let go. Just because I just add them to my kit of like, I've heard a new story now. Uh, but, you know, the, there is uh, the belief. So Susie is a complex personality. She was the youngest person in this entire network. Mm -hmm. and, and yet she was the executive director. She was, uh, you know, some of the, the curators were, you know, who become the lead, the, like long-term leaders of their culture scenes. They're of all differing ages. And Susie is by like five years or four years, the youngest of this huge network. And, uh, and she's in charge of all of them, telling them what to do and how to program and run their business and so forth. Uh, run the NGO. And she's also highly influential in the early days when I'm talking about like my interest is in this er the early days of the programming and how the program is used. When we talk about the influencing machine, it's important to look at these 20 centers and think about them as a machine that you could just synchronize and turn it on. And so the, the Susie is rolling out the very first exhibition of uh, of this advanced idea of socially engaged practice. And then there's copycat exhibitions that kind of follow. Uh, but they're following at such a quick rate that's not reasonable. It's not even like, oh, we tried this idea and now you're going to do it. You know, you would see like a six month delay and something like that. If, and that's already fast. You know, if we have to mm -hmm. think about the organic passage of an idea in a, a culture space across national boundaries in analog time in former closed societies in the West, it takes forever for you know, uh, an idea like pop art to travel and uh, and so forth. You know, these viral ideas when we think of them, the, the memetic, the great memetic moments. 
Okay, yeah. So you're saying the speed. Art, ideology traveling. So so imagine that when I say when I think of the influencing machine, uh, it's like you can put in this script and boom, run it like a program across all these centers. And so you see, uh, Susie is the one who is credited as this first person doing this important first important exhibition of, of social engaged practice. But there's such an immediate uh, copycatting of this that it's clear that this was in the cards, that this, mm-hmm. this approach to uh, social engaged practice was, was enforced as a, as a template, uh, even in a way that it kind of undermines the possibility that it was Susie's idea. If we have to imagine an auteur had to author an experiment with this idea and see how it works in real space, in real social space, to then say, we want you to do this. this I'm a genius. You need mm-hmm. to do this now. Uh, no, dude, they had a template, like, everyone's going to do this. This will be the first one. And, uh, and so that's, and that's, and that's the machine really in the, at its finest. Uh, when I think of how this thing works to, to spread an ideological, uh, emergent behavior. So Susie's not just the executive director who's setting these centers up, but she's also the genius who's, who's introducing this first idea this most important idea of social engaged practice to the to the network that becomes the the brand of uh, the art of the open society, and uh, and what to say? I mean, Susie is a is a complicated personality. I said she's this this youngest personality, so it, she's she's often classified. Uh, you know, she gets these different uh, quite negative titles, like she was a czarina, or mm-hmm. she was a, a prima donna, or a narcissist, or this, that, and the other. I, I know. I, I do believe Susie had a had a challenging job uh, in uh, in her lap, and uh, and definitely, you know, things would probably get to her head, you know, based on the power she had. But at some point in '96, '97, uh, Susie's also responsible for leading the um, the sunset years, which is the transitioning away from support of the open society to create autonomous models. So she yeah. turns SCCA Budapest into C3, which is a, the Center for Culture and Communication, uh, rebranding it with a new name, showing that it can function on its own financially and using yeah. you know different kinds of financial models of support. And, uh, and so she, the, the, whole, the whole thing is that Susie's you know, trying to do this mirroring thing across the board from a managerial to a content production point of view and um and then right after c3 is created at 97 she's she's let go because of what is deemed she's a toxic personality um there's even rumors that that were created that uh, she had a drug problem mm-hmm. um susie has told me that she saw things that were problematic, uh, that she tried to report to her higher higher ups. For example, the open the, the Soros centers were run on bags of cash. Mm-hmm. There was no there was no swift banking system or uh, that uh, you know would allow the money to travel to these places uh, to support their programs. The money was often taken from a bank in, in Austria and a, and a brown bag brought to Sarajevo or Belgrade or wherever. Wow. So there's, there's and, and this isn't talked about in Octavian Asanu's book, uh, this way in which the money travels, you know, um, to these places when it's a, you know, a challenging, you know, when the financial systems are not dialed in. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, and so Susie claims that she saw something happen with, with a brown bag of cash that um, was uh, was suspicious, and this was in St. Petersburg, and um, oh. and and it happened between the director and one of the 
the board members. Uh, and at the same time, another board member of, apparently was murdered and, uh, and ended up in the trunk of a car. You know, the Open Society has never been, t- the Open Society Institute as an uh, NGO has not been ever fully embraced with open arms in especially places like Russia no. or, the, uh, or Belarus or, or wherever. And those so, are the late um, Yeltsin days, the, right? Anyways, yeah, yeah. This is this is ninety six, ninety seven, yeah. And so Susie reported that, and her, her she told me she reported that, and that led to uh, a chain reaction. That uh, ultimately, one day she's in the office, and her second in command comes in and says, "You're out of here. Wow, uh, you got to go now. Pack up your desk. You're, you're leaving right now. And anyone who disagrees with this decision is going with you." And Susie told me. That the person said in that moment, and we're going to tell people that you're a toxic personality with a drug problem. Wow. And uh, and I actually found that in a through the Wayback Machine. I found that it reported in a Hungarian newspaper of the time. Oh my uh, God. But that was the only proof that that PR tactic was going to be used to defame Susie. Um, Susie's story from thereafter is fascinating because you have to think about the fact that she was the queen of the art world. She was in charge of 20 art centers, a whole region, an enormous, vast region uh, that the world was just discovering, Eastern yeah. Europe. And Susie was the face of it with her 20, you know, uh, second-in-commands behind her. You know, she led an army, essentially, a cultural army that was funded by George Soros. And so she was, at that time, in the mid-90s, the most important and most powerful person in the art world writ large. Uh, based on the financial support she had behind her and the the geographic control that she had. And so she then is suddenly thrown away like a Kleenex uh, from one day to the next and and loses all this power. And uh, and it was it must have been an enormous shock to her her ego. And she claims that that day, she, uh, in a daze, wandered into a Buddhist temple in Budapest, and and in that moment, uh, in front of the doll, the doll, the in front of the Lama, who was there, uh, who was visiting, took the Bodhisattva valve and Bodhisattva vow, and becomes a devout Buddhist, and it leads her on this entire spiritual path, which becomes her her next chapter, which is yeah. essentially as a, a new age guru type. Which is so fascinating. I just want to read one quote from your essay because it has so much contained in it. And I just want maybe uh, to unpack a little bit of it. But for somebody that, like you said, was like the field general of this Soros art effort uh, to go in this new direction was very surprising to me. But you wrote that Mazzoli is a known medium nowadays who channels the master teachers, a quorum of ascended masters who speak directly through her. She does programming for the Temple of Understanding, a UN religious organization blending the world's religions into a one-world religion. She is a leading expert in UFOs in UFO and conspiracy communities, having given considerable coverage to the Montauk Project and the Montauk Boys, a covert government experiment in time travel and pedophilia. She believes she was also a child who was involved in the Montauk Project. She told me in confidence that she had sexual relations with an actual reptilian being and had advanced knowledge of 9-11. Whoa. Okay, so I guess now we're at the point of this podcast, conspiracy theory alert. Uh, the per- <laughs> How ironic that the person working under George Soros throughout the 90s ends up believing in quote-unquote conspiracy theories. But hold on a second. what What's the deal with all this? So she believes she was part of the Montauk Project? I, I assume she has, she has psychic abilities um, as well. She's... Uh- 
she's connected to you know there's there's three types of person associated with the montauk project there are the scientists that ran the experiments mm -hmm. there are what are called the montauk boys who were uh, tested on uh, orphans or whoever that were you know their genitals were used to help stimulate the time travel and then there are the jumpers uh, the time travelers and uh, so she's been in there and there's only a couple uh, and I can't remember the names of these guys, but she's, you know, connected to all three of these groups and, uh, and, and told me, you know, the, the way she said she might've been also a part of it. Uh, she, it was like, she had, uh, repressed memories from her childhood when she was in Australia. That's that right. Cause she's Hungarian, Australian, right? That's right. Her parents are immigrants to, they left during communism and, you know, mm. uh, she's a first first generation Australian, but you know, so, and, and yeah, basically, she went back to Hungary to study abroad and ended up getting somehow connected to the SCCA network. It's not exactly clear to me. It's like she stumbled into it, yeah. uh, is essentially the way she she puts it. And so, yeah, uh, uh, whether she was involved in it is we're talking about a, a past life regression memory that came out of meditation. Uh, I don't oh, think okay. much to read into it. This is a past life regression, not a like my my actual childhood in this life or a little bit. That's what she limited. says. She says it's her childhood, but she okay. says it based on a memory of a mm. set of memories that suddenly made sense. I see. I mean, I she's see. she's also to be to be fair, you know, she's a she's a, a deep magical thinker and spiritual medium. You know, she yeah. I had this wonderful uh, intimate relationship with her as a, uh, in terms of my work as a kind of deep dive journalist, gonzo anthropologist, you know, she, I did these interviews that uh, were essentially that my first interview I did with her was how to put this. I came to know about Susie Masoli in 2018, uh, when I was very deeply involved in, uh, experiments and magical thinking within my work, uh, mm -hmm. working with witches and me mediums and all kinds of ideas of conspiracy theory in a very broad and, and also different, quite specific ways. And, and I was riffing on this SCCA story all the time for like 15 years since back when I was a journalist to when I'm suddenly now deeply involved in looking at conspiracy theory as a raw material within uh, storytelling. And so uh, somebody was like, you need to meet Susie Masoli. You know, she's the architect of this thing. You will love her. She's a, she's like, does ayahuasca rich. Uh, she's a, she's a <laughs> right. shaman who does ayahuasca rituals in Peru. Oh, okay. And I was like, you are fucking kidding me. I have to meet this person. And so I wrote to her in this funny way. I had, I was already very deeply involved in the new age movement, working with different religious groups, working with different shaman people, you know, like Jodorowsky, oh, yeah. uh, the, the, the Unarians, all kinds of different religious groups in LA and, um, you know, OTO and Satanists and so forth. You know, I'm working with them as like different ambassadors of energy systems who work with art and use art as a material in their spiritual practice. And so I'm, and I'm approaching Masoli under the guise of the new age saying, look, I think you and I are on a very similar path. You know, I happen to know a ton about your background and about this Soros network in the nineties, but I too I'm on a spiritual path and, and, and using my work and curating and contemporary art to pursue uh, arts Aboriginal function as a vehicle for spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I would love to connect with you and talk about ideas of spirituality. And, and this was true, but this was also my way of uh, being a Trojan horse. Cause I ultimately only wanted to talk to her about the SCCA. Yeah. And so, but I, I sparked her interest. I got her trust. She, we had this first phone call 
which was essentially to you know, run through her biography and it was like a two hour phone call. And then I did another phone call with her where I revealed my intentions and I said, you know, my work is technically going to culminate in uh, uh, making this exhibition, which is looking very heavily at your story. I'm trying to look at it respectfully, but it's a complicated story, as you know, and uh, it's a story that I'm going to tell in a very complicated way. And I want to just be forthright with you and, uh, and have your blessing and, uh, and, and be able to kind of have you somehow take part in it because it is about your legacy, mm-hmm. knowing that she had been um, wronged yeah. ultimately by this community that she created. And so she uh, uh, is not a person who's willing to go against what she created. She does not speak negatively about open society. Mm-hmm. Uh, she does not speak negatively about those years with the SCCA. But uh, she ultimately is approving of, of my work. And, and that then evolved into then when I had just done the first show in Bucharest in 2019, I was like, I need to take advantage of this relationship with Susie while I have it. And, and, uh, and, I, and I have this filmmaker that I work very closely with who's an Emmy Award winning filmmaker. And I was like, let's go to her house, dude. I, the door is open. We can go there and let's just jam out a, a, a long form interview with her and just get 40% of a documentary on film. We'll just have it in the can yeah. in case we can figure out something later in the future. And that's what we did in that visit. All kinds of things came out, you know, her telling me about, uh, you know, men in black, uh, reptilians, uh, the Montauk situation and all of that stuff when I had to look at it in the moment, you know, as I'm trying to collect as much forensic data as I can about the Soros history, I looked at what she was doing as an exercise in trying to undermine her own credibility. Mm. Somehow I knew she's, she's fringe at this point and she is a believer. She definitely has tried to make multiple TV shows that are new age TV shows and conspiracy theory TV shows. She is deeply connected to the Montauk people. That is all real. Her investment is real. But you know, when somebody's you're, you know, you're in the face of somebody who's trying to collect factual information about your history and you're trying to tell them you've had sex with a reptilian. uh, All I can think of is that you're trying to test me as to whether I'm going to be like, this is all bullshit. You know, you're you're trying to test. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, or something. You know, you're trying to test the uh, my ability to believe your story, and uh, and what will ultimately be anyone's ability to believe your story in the future. Because this is fucking crazy what you're saying. And uh, uh, but a, you know, we pressed. Very interesting. Oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean these and these are tactics. These are storytelling tactics. You know, and I ultimately believe everything Susie has told me. The things about you know. Uh, advanced knowledge of 9-11 uh, came through uh, Diane Wireman, who was Susie's C- superior, who uh, that's right. Who, who knew somebody or whose husband was told not to go downtown um, on the morning of the of, of 9-11. Uh, I wow. Can't, I can't I exactly. Mean, she's I, I not the only psychic. She's not the only psychic I'm aware of that specifically had like psychic claims to have had psychic foreknowledge of 9-11. So I think, hey, you know, I'm not ruling it out. This was at the all. phone call, though. This was one of these that, situations uh, we that's think a, of, of, mm-hmm. of, of like, you know, somebody uh, knew, you know, the they having advanced knowledge of, of yes. 9/11 and and getting a heads up to not go downtown or not go to the office today, and uh, yeah, and well, so that was um, that was one of those stories. Okay, okay. Well, speaking of they, I think maybe this is a good transition point because I'm curious, did. 
how does she feel specifically these days, given her interest in the conspiracy world, about George Soros? Did she say? Uh, you know, she does not say anything negative about George Soros uh, at all. Uh, and yet she has obviously reflected on what his evolving um, state uh, as a cipher and culture has meant. You know, she knows that he's considered by some groups as a as the Illuminati or reptilian or, or, or the NWO guy or or what have you. I mean, this is she's not naive to these these uh, ideas of, of this her former boss. Um, she literally was her his travel partner for uh, you know he would go to all these places. They were very very close. Um, you know, she's going to him directly and asking for money for things all the time. Uh, she had a very, very close relationship with him for arguably six, seven, eight years. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, yeah, 95, 96 things go, go south, but she never said anything negative about George. Uh, and I didn't, I never asked anything about Illuminati stuff really. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay. I am she more of a, a more. No, I'm more leaning, you know, if I have, you know, this story, when we look at what it means, what does it mean to take control of art and, you know, and have it perform the functions of neoliberalism and, 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 the, and the aims of a new world order and all these things, the way those conspiracy paths go are many. Uh, there are many dark paths that that take. Uh, if we have to wonder what other stories tell us about uh, taking control of culture, the, the stable, the, the, the restructuring of financial markets and the press and uh, entertainment and all these things. You know, there's a, there's a couple of these stories we can think of. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, so the, the Illuminati story, I'm not really interested in, I think like if I have to go the conspiracy route, the level headed conspiracy route of this is the deep state route, yeah. um, which I think is a very fair route to think about, you know, when we think of uh, secret intelligence communities, their, their backstage roles in manipulating culture and, and how that affects the ultimate manipulation of civilization and, and government networks. Um, that's the safe route to take. If you want to go the conspiracy theory route, the other routes are, however, very viable in terms of how does this story relate to ideas like the Protocols of Zion or any of these things. You know, you can easily twist those things into that framework and say, oh, this checks out, you know, as a, in accordance with that conspiracy theory or, or, or ideas of the Illuminati or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, so Susie has certainly reflected on what it means to have worked for the, the, the master of the reptilians or whatever, but we didn't really really dwell on that uh okay. as far as i recall in our 15 hours of interview yeah, um yeah. I, d I definitely did uh ask her about you know how it did relate to deep state stuff mm -hmm. uh my my conspiracy theories about george soros uh are quite soft and and very aspirational like i'm interested in his background as a second generation esperantist uh, and, that and was what does very it mean fascinating to that part of your essay talking about his i did not know about his esperanto background or that even his name shorosh is you know esperanto for will soar that he you know yeah he was a second gen his his first language his first language is esperanto that's pretty wild not many people in the world can say that and in keeping with the sort of uh yeah the deep state and also yeah, maybe these kind of uh, uh, spiritual, cultural kind of things. I found something that you probably haven't read before uh, or that most people haven't read before, but I think it's an interesting, it's a very brief 
summary uh, about Soros from a book that uh, regular listeners of Subliminal Jihad will recognize the author. This is The New Money Masters from 1989 by a man named John Train, a Wall Street investor, advisor to multiple presidents, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, basically an on-and-off CIA agent throughout his whole life, throughout the Cold War, co-founder of the Paris Review, major backer of covert aid to the Mujahideen in the 1980s, etc. So this guy is the deep state. Also, I don't know if you've ever stumbled across our episodes about folk singer Phil Oakes, but when Phil Oakes went into a kind of psychotic state in the early 70s, he started strutting around New York City calling himself John Train and said that he that John Train had murdered Phil Oakes and that now it was possessing his body. Train uh, also worked for Train Cabot and Associates, which has connections to the JFK assassination and George H.W. Bush. I could go on, but you get the idea. Anyways, wow. he, he died last year, a little bit after that episode we did came out. Uh, he was like 96 or something. But I noticed in one of his uh, obituaries that he was credited with writing these bestseller kind of pop finance books, The Money Masters and The New Money Masters, that made uh, financial rock stars of people like Warren Buffett and George Soros. So this deep state, this ultra, like this guy's like an old wasp. I don't know if he was in Skull and Bones, but like, I think he was a Harvard man, but like basically about as old and connected and nefarious as one could get in America, right? And he is kind of credited with really giving George Soros a big boost of celebrity in the 1980s when he was still coming up. But I just want to read you a little tiny section he writes in his chapter about Soros called The Soros Foundation. So John Train writes... Soros has started five foundations intended to encourage the liberalization of thinking in several Eastern Bloc countries. The Open Society Fund, a New York foundation, began in 1979 and operates worldwide. The Soros Foundation Hungary, established in 1984, has as directors Wassily Leontief, Philip Kaiser, William D. Zabel, and Soros himself. Its objectives are, quote, to support the evolution of Hungarian society, to enlarge the possibilities for creative activity, and to support new initiatives in culture and education. It gives grants and scholarships, supports libraries and other institutions, and backs research into social change, economics, and psychology. It also supports education, the arts, and other areas. Soros says that it has become known in Hungary as, quote, an, alter an alternate ministry of culture. One of the foundation's interesting projects is a three-legged joint venture with an Italian bank in the Milan Chamber of Commerce and a Hungarian bank in the Hungarian Chamber of Commerce. They are creating a management training center in an old castle outside Budapest. Mark Palmer, U.S. ambassador to Hungary, originally suggested the idea. <laughs> Academician Abel G. Agenbegian, a leading Russian theoretician of perestroika, attended and spoke at the inauguration, saying that some Moscow authorities had opposed Soviet participation, but that he expected to start sending Soviet students to the institute in the course. The Fund for the Opening and the Reform of China supports research, the distribution of foreign books and periodicals, study groups, and visits by artists and intellectuals abroad. The Soros Foundation's Soviet Union supports Gorbachev's new thinking in the cultural and economic areas. It made a joint venture agreement with Gorbachev's Cultural Foundation, but now is becoming an independent Soviet foundation in its own right, called Cultural Initiative. Its initial objectives include enabling so Soviet cultural and scientific figures and students to travel and study abroad. 
However, the foundation concept is unfamiliar in the Soviet Union and has been hard to get underway. An article in the Washington Post in March 1988 mentioned that after a year, the foundation had been unable to open a bank account in Moscow. Now, however, it is beginning to have an impact on Russian intellectual life. I have run into Soros's traces in philanthropy in southern Africa, where he has been skillful in identifying groups to support that not only are having a useful and original impact, but also will probably survive two criteria of creative philanthropy. I suspect that Soros will turn out to be one of the most imaginative and original philanthropists of our era, and that his importance in that role will eclipse his considerable input on the investment scene. So... Right there, John Train is uh, pretty much predicting the exact trajectory that George Soros would go on. Back in 1989, just, you know, a couple short years before the SCCA, so he was on the radar of all these groups. I mean, this is, of course, the 1980s, right, when Soros gets started. And maybe now, uh, to use the time we have left to talk about, you know, Soros the boogeyman. It's something that has frustrated me for such a long time, and I feel like your exhibit blows a lot of like the smoke out of the way. But that is one thing that uh, even, you know, I'm no fan of Soros, but it's my biggest critique of, say, the right-wing haters of Soros, even putting aside the uh, anti-Semitic thing, which we'll get to in a second. But, you know, your average, say, MAGA American who thinks Soros is a woke cultural puppet master, blah, 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 and he's going to institute like Marxism in America. And it's like, Nobody remember, even liberals don't remember that George Soros cut his teeth in philanthropy. I think you actually put the quote in your book, I disintegrated the Soviet Union, George Soros. <laughs> right? So I'd be like, this guy, uh, I'm sorry, you know, he is not going to uh, reinstitute some kind of Maoist dictatorship over the people, though maybe that's Americans' problem for not noticing the difference between like radical neoliberalism and like, orthodox, you know, Marxist-Leninism. But nonetheless, like, this guy is a figure that would actually be more at home kind of on the political right. And, you know, over various things I've researched, like, you find interesting people that, for example, Viktor Orban, right, one of the greatest critics of, of Soros these days, he was the recipient, I think, of like a Soros scholarship, like a Soros fellow uh, he was a Soros fellow in the 1980s when he was a liberal kind of you know, anti-communist Hungarian dissident. So in a sense, even the reactionary nationalists, including the ones that run Uzdovsky Castle, right, where you did your exhibit, in some cases were, you know, they, their formative years and they're coming into like political life and the sort of the post-communist space were like, they were birds of a feather with George Soros. It was only later when in the 2000s and the 2010s, when uh, sort of the, the boogeyman image of him kind of shifted. But first of all, I mean, maybe let's just, uh, let's just talk about the boogeyman for a second, especially, I think that like the reaction to your show is very fascinating to watch because I, in, in my view, you did a very delicate kind of tight wire act of being at, at this castle. This, uh, I think it's what it's been described as like the first right wing contemporary art museum in Europe. Yeah. When at the same time, you are, I think you've called yourself an insider and basically a liberal throughout most of your, you know, art career. And you're not right wing, correct? I mean, like no, in a formal no. sense. Yeah. So, but, but at the same time, 
you wrote in your essay that you mentioned the moment you mention the words George Soros, it's like a spell. People's eyes glaze over. Something clicks in their head. Their minds become uncomfortably inoculated from what's probably conspiracy theory about a blood drinking puppet master. So, yeah, can you speak on that? Like the, the challenge of talking about Soros, like what is your experience? Uh, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting because I have spent so much time in Eastern Europe and and I I didn't know and I learned of George Soros from Eastern Europe uh, and, and and the Soros centers and and then later would learn about his uh, reputation in, in the West. But it was it was vague, honestly, in the early 2000s when I became aware of him. And then something strange starts to happen. Uh, I, I'm always, because of this story, I've always looked at the name. I, I see it wherever I see it. I, I mean, and it's and then and then suddenly you see it become this 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 name that's uh, that is somehow used tactically for for PR um, from people like Victor Urban using it in election campaigns to uh, Fox News to whoever you know ultimately using him as that notorious straw man that he's become uh, to represent the fear of, of uh, liberalization or, or control or puppet masters, wherever your mind goes when people straw man him as a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so interesting thing though, is when you talk about George Soros in Eastern Europe, you have very profound conversations about the impact that this man has had, whether people like it or not, they have profound, found opinions and very educated understandings of the role he's had and the what what it means to um try to represent him via their whatever wherever their moral compass goes and yet uh of course everyone's though aware of what's become this um very i don't know how you know this is the ghost story of, of the, this boogeyman that's that's that everyone's very afraid that when you start talking about george soros critically you might be uh coming from that camp of person who's 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 trying to turn him into that that straw man which he's ultimately that's all he's known of uh as in the west in my opinion is as this straw man character nobody understands the depth of his work his philanthropy, his foundations, what he's done in Eastern Europe. That's yeah, on either the side. Real edu- yeah. The real education I've had is, is, is revealing this story to people, honestly, because uh, people are never, have, have never heard of these centers and never heard of the, the implementation of, of contemporary art as a tool for change for neoliberalism in the nineties and these places. Um, the interesting thing though, I've, I, I had to do as a learning experience over time was learn to tell the story without saying his name. Mm. Because unfortunately, the moment you say his name, even if you're not saying it in a good or bad way, people's minds are affected almost like, like this idea of spell crafting. There's our spell casting rather there, 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 something happens in their chemistry and in their perception, whatever you're saying that uh, is is resistant to any you know, or they've they've already made up their minds somehow yeah. that if you're talking about this guy, you're politicizing him somehow. You are only participating in this Rorschach test of uh, of how he is represented as a, a cipher for good or evil. And my role in telling the story has always been to talk about the anomalies and the mutations of of how this story represents almost like the most amazing advanced scientific moment of avant-garde i can imagine let's fucking look at it for what it's worth is this incredible anomaly uh but the moment you say george soros's name you're you're suddenly um you are able to start 
fantasizing about how this could lead to the potentials of that fantasy around the color revolutions and oh, the yeah. destabilization of of uh, of communities and uh, and cultures and and wherever your mind you know and, and again it goes this spectrum of of light to dark and the potential conspiracy theories of the deep state to the protocols and uh, and 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 so the interesting thing has uh, has been to try to walk that tightrope and to never say his name until the end of the story uh, and then say, and George Soros is the person that funded this stuff and then see how that works because they've got all the information in their mind and, they, and you know, they've taken the pill and then you give them their Rorschach, you know, pill yeah, yeah. and see where they go with it. Well, it's so That's funny because if you, funny- if, if you replaced his name with like, and then Charles Koch funded art, like uh, a whole segment of people would be like, oh, really? That's so interesting. I want to read about this in the New Yorker. But then, you know, yeah, there's something that just like shut, like short circuits people's brains when you talk about Soros. I've been made fun of. I've been made fun of by leading people in my industry. The moment I've said, oh, and I'm, I'm looking at how George Soros is working with contemporary art in Eastern Europe in the 90s and had the editor of Art Forum be like, ooh, what do you think he's doing? You know, like, <laughs> oh, do you think really? it's Jewish space lasers? You know, I mean. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. And in a way, it, it, it's like the perfect shit coat for a very real phenomenon, which your exhibit like lays out in detail the real, you know, the reality of that is like using new media technologies, using the art world to push like to astroturf the, the spread of like a neoliberal subjectivity in these countries. And it's something that is still, you know, it's a contested issue today, even with something that Russia basically takes, you know, on very unashamedly, like, you know, preaches now that like NGOs are sus, like don't, we don't trust NGOs, kick them out. I mean, I think you've noted they have their own, but it's like, you know, so there is still a contested thing about the color revolutions. You look at Ukraine, you look at Maidan, you look at the Arab Spring, the the Rose Revolution, the you know the the denim revolution, the revolution. Yeah, yeah. All of these different color revolutions, and I think uh, you sent me a Journeyman Pictures documentary from 2011. I don't know how they make so many documentaries, but they have some good ones. And that was all about was it Popovich, the head of Otpor? Yeah, yeah, Sergei yeah, exactly. Popovich, and like. This is peak like WikiLeaks, like Tor is going to liberate the world, kind of a, like techno-optimistic era. But I mean, the documentary itself is pretty skeptical about, you know, this guy is going around like bragging about how many countries he's exporting revolution to and all the tactics. Like it's all been standardized by like 2010 and now it's using the Internet to actually inject itself in and like accelerate things to a scale that like would have been almost unimaginable in the nineties, but you see the roots of it back in the nineties, even the it's technically pre Soros, but the, you sent me that really fascinating, like Romanian exhibit, uh, the media were with us, which I feel like is kind Mm -hmm. of like a warning shot. And in a lot of ways, and it like presages what is to, uh, to come. And it's, it's mostly about, the, the Romanian quote-unquote revolution, the overthrow and murder of Ceausescu, and the pivotal role that 
the television basically played in like mediating that event for everybody because it was one of the first overthrows that was sort of covered in real time live on television and then had like some of the coup people go to the TV station with a bunch of old Securitate generals and declare that, you know, they were taking over the government. And Susie Mazzulli, that was like one of her first like exhibitions, right? Like right after Ceausescu died. And within um, months, within months. Yeah, within months. And they were trying to grapple with like what was the role like TV and the image. A lot of interesting stuff in there. But then it sparked something in me. And I went back and watched this 2003, I think it was a German documentary called Checkmate Strategy of a Revolution. I sent it to you. You watched it, right? So great. It was and so it, great. I think it's a great companion piece to the media we're with us because this is interviewing a lot of international people like Hungarian uh, expats and dissidents, Romanian dissidents, uh, C- high-level CIA guys like Bob Bear is in there, you know, State Department, French intelligence. And for some, this is one of those rare like European documentaries that just really like lays out pretty boldly that like, oh yeah, we engineered a fucking coup to like kill Ceausescu, you know, basically because he was standing in the way of preventing the reunification of Germany and et cetera, et cetera. But like the the tactics they describe in this documentary are they're basically talking about how they were plotting the dramaturgy of the Romanian revolution and how the the famous crowd scene, right, which they dissect in the media were with us um, and talk about how that's really, you know, it's, it's acknowledged. That's when Ceausescu lost the people because he went out there and everyone mm-hmm. was booing him and chanting and he like lost control of the crowd. And in Checkmate, they talk about how like, oh yeah, we like we like had sent like provocateurs into this crowd because I think even one of the the Romanian like turncoat generals who was probably involved in the coup says, oh, you know, probably one of probably some one of his advisors like told him stupidly to go out there and give a speech, like show them you're the boss. But maybe that guy was working for somebody because that was a really bad idea. Yeah. And then they staged this televised provocation, this symbolic, basically almost like desecration of the power of the ruler. And meanwhile, like the other documentary says, you know, they were training commandos in like Austria and Germany and Hungary. Like there were Americans training like dissidents in like commando tactics and shit that were infiltrated into the country. So there was like a lot of different moving pieces going on. But then the result was this confusion. And actually the weirdest part of that documentary was that it opens and closes with a story of like a teenage boy who was just shot by a sniper, like the day Ceausescu's overthrown. And they never know why, but it's implied that the U.S. like sent in basically Contras to randomly snipe people like right after the palace was stormed and all that stuff to create an atmosphere of anarchy and confusion, which would ratchet up the people's desire to have like some kind of ruler come in and restore order, maybe the Hungarian military. And, you know, you mentioned in your essay interviewing, I, I think, I don't know if it was Geert that you mentioned do you see any similarities between the, the 90s SECA network and Operation Gladio? <laughs> and um, yeah. I don't know. Like I, I, when you look at the Romanian revolution kind of thing of that, there was definitely kind of like it seems like a Gladio situation going on. And, and in the way that the media was weaponized to create the spectacle of Ceausescu's downfall is seems like kind of a canary in the coal mine for how media would really start to dominate and uh, and that one philosopher, uh, Flisser, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Y- yes. You really uh, encouraged me to listen to. I guess his lecture is somewhat famous from this 
yeah. uh, this 1990, you know, exhibit, you know, he, he talks about the anti the anti-political nature of television, right? As opposed to like the written mm-hmm. word and mm-hmm. that television in a certain sense, like cannot be political because, well, what is it? I mean, he describes happenings and events and how like the creation of like video and picture technology basically like inverted it captured real events in like a still image that became just a happening stripped of context stripped of the contributing factors that led up to it stripped of its consequences it's just a happening and so in that sense everything on television whether it's like a dictator getting overthrown or a revolution or something or it's 9-11 or something it's just a spectacular event that uh does does not contain the explanation of the event. <laughs> it's just, so I don't know. Um, I guess that, I, uh, yeah, sorry. What do you think? About yeah, that? no, I, I think like the, this is, this is where this conversation should be with this thing. You know, I, I had this challenge uh, as an art historian and historian of cura- curatorial practice to constantly try to make sense of this thing. You know, how do I talk about this thing within my industry? There's nothing like it. No one's talking about it. It's not talked about properly. And I had a moment, I have a really good relationship with Kurt Levink. Uh, I've interviewed him multiple times. Uh, he came to the opening of the show in 2019 and the opening in Poland in uh, 2022 last year. And for me, he is this ideal witness of this entire thing. He was there from the very beginning his idea, he's the father of tactical media, which we haven't even really talked about, which is really this like academic formalization of the, you know, weaponization of perception and, uh, and how to hack perception in various ways, uh, tactics, ideas that become known as like culture hacking and, and uh, all, all these various things that are technically not art, mm-hmm. that are actually the things that create uh, real radical forms of change within our environments. Uh, this is the guy who's putting words and practice into it in a real formalized way. And so, uh, and Herr is there at the media. We're with us as a, a media theorist. And, um, but he's also there in Bucharest, uh, if my, if I, my memory serves me, around the, the time of the revolution. Hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because George Soros, it has to be said, was on the very first civilian plane yeah. that came into Bucharest following the assassination of Ceausescu. Uh, three weeks after his, uh, two weeks after he's assassinated, Soros flies into Bucharest mm. and he helps handpick the members <laughs> of the group for social dialogue. He's the guy in the room who's helping put together the government uh, that's going to be the new government of Romania. I don't know, Aaron. And, um, Are you saying he's a puppet those... master? You know, it's like, well, he's there literally picking the cabinet for the new government. And like, so what do you, really? at one point, you know, we have to, we have to develop some kind of vocabulary to talk about people like George Soros, you know, I mean, he's certainly not the only one, but, and, and even that Checkmate documentary really goes into depth about how like the driving force the CIA and British intelligence and German intelligence all used to kind of foment this whole and organize this whole revolution against Ceausescu was the Hungarian dissident community, which ties it even closer to Soros, he, the Hungarian, right? And then he, there he is picking the new government, you know, and all this stuff. And so it's a well, lot of it's almost so the, out in the are, open. These are the beta tests. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, this is what's called the open conspiracy. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like they're, they're literally 
picking, uh, it's, it's, they've got the, the technology, the ideology and the, the operators to, uh, to make, to, to put this thing on repeat. And that's what the SCCA network ultimately is because it's like, they're not, they're not art historians and curators. Often they were dissidents that are asked to use the power of this philanthropy and the power of the creative act and, you know, sidestep bureaucracy, call it art and invade public space and destabilize these symbols and, and mm-hmm. perform these acts of hygiene that are quite intense. Honestly, they're, they're, they're not art, they're tactical media in, in, in every sense. Yeah. And yeah. To, compa- to compare to Gladio is important because and you have in that this yin and yang of the covert and the overt of this is operating out in the open. This is seriously the face of, of a very polished uh, ex- export import of uh, Western values uh, writ large, you know, and, 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 and through the functionary of the artist and the open democratic systems of, of practice. Uh, and then, and then behind the scenes, you, you know, have the, these, these shadows of, mm-hmm. of, of people operating to create the fear that's going to ask for more control. And, um, but they're both networks. They're both large scale networks that are there to help create and perform acts of hygiene in society. Uh, and they have to be put in the same family because the Soros Center for Contemporary Art Network has no place in the contemporary art world and the history of contemporary art. It is, a uh, of course, an important way to talk about the globalization of art and the global art world, but there's yeah. so little to compare it to uh, that we have to look at it on on par with uh, other uh, major efforts within uh, control cultures and 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 so forth. So. Yeah, yeah. The other oh, the other random thing I wanted to ask you because I I think in one of your interviews you mentioned living in New York in the 1990s. Did you ever mm-hmm. were you familiar there at the time with Josh Harris and Quiet We Live in Public? No, I was pretty young. Uh, okay. I was in my 20s and early early 20s and was not looking too critically at things. Uh, okay, I, you know that's another uh, one that uh, we no. that was one of our earliest uh, episodes. Um, I think it's still on our Patreon. Maybe I'll unlock it. But that is a fascinating one because he was a tech millionaire who started sponsoring these kind of wacky like art parties, and then he built. A like underground rave in Manhattan in 1999 that where people slept in these pods that were connected by CCTV. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a documentary about it, and like it's such yeah. a disturbing like harbinger harbinger of like the world that like we're living in today and stuff. And this guy, meanwhile, he's like this crazy doc com 1.0 guy whose dad is literally a CA officer in Ethiopia. And like he had like a CIA psychiatrist there to do like coercive like, but it was all play, right? It was all play, you know, and stuff like that. And like a fascist security force that would like interrogate people and everyone was on drugs. And, and, and it devolved within like a week and a half into kind of like a Stanford prison experiment, like nightmare, yeah. basically. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very um, interesting story. But also I feel like of a piece with this uh, type of like, video networked video art kind of stuff coming out of scca at the time that guy also josh harris has a bizarre european art connection to 9-11 because he did i think it was called gelatin i don't know if you've ever heard of them um they're Shut austrian the fuck up that's oh. yeah yeah dude I, I have the book for this where they open the window and yes do, uh... josh harris was uh, allegedly flying around in a helicopter filming that like in the months before 9-11 and the fbi came to visit him the day after and like he claims that his like life was ruined and he was like followed by the CIA and he had to leave the country for a while. And 
like it, it, it totally insane shit. But yeah, it's like, yeah, gelatin. They were, um, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there, <laughs> but, um, very, I mean, if you ever I read, saw the, the film, there's a film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, for gelatin or for, we live in public for the gelatin thing. There's okay. a film and it's, and it's him in the, in the helicopter. I did yep. not know there was the same person. That's same wild. person. If you read a uh, Thomas Pynchon's bleeding edge, the character Gabriel ice in that, that, that book's also about like the New York tech scene and nine 11 and like weird connections between them. That book very ahead <coughs> of the curve has a lot of like interesting meditations about, what the hell was going on uh, with, I don't know. But it you get the sense that, like, when, especially, like, and even, like, George Soros's financial stuff is so opaque, and that never, ever gets talked about. So, yeah, I mean, I did not know that he was, like, distributing literally bags of cash. That's funny, because that's a meme now. Like, where's my Soros check from the protest? And it's like, no, at like one point, his agents were literally just flying like duffel bags of cash to like Bucharest and all these other places to sort of like take over the culture when there was this brief void, um, essentially. It's just, yeah. And so, I mean, art um, can be a very valuable tool for mapping possible futures, uh, I think we could safely say. And in some degree, <laughs> it's... Uh, I don't know, like indistinguishable from magic, uh, to paraphrase, what was it, Arthur C. Clarke? But, I mean, you 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 use that language a lot about talking about these things being kind of ritual and creating sacred spaces or defiling sacred spaces and all these things and how... I mean, I th it makes me think about another Eastern European, Marina Abramovich, who talked about conspiracy theories, even got roped into that because she was doing like a spirit-cooking... Uh, art, you know, ritual thing with the Podesta brothers, and then that spun out of control. But, but it, it, it that also, I mean, I always thought that was interesting because that does teeter on this fine point of, okay, yes, she's obviously talking about like a a witchy, you know, conceptual art thing that she does, but she's having like all these elite, like very powerful people come to her private house and they're not doing it in public. So then like, does that line get blurry between it being a ritual and it just being a cool art performance? Like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Can we pause for one second? Oh yeah, sorry. The recording. Oh yeah, it's still okay recording. To pause. Yeah, yeah, we could. But I, I just need. To, I need to pee. Oh and, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, go I'd for it. To, I'd love to have a quick cigarette, and I'll totally go into this. It's oh just, yeah, I'm yeah. Feeling, are you? If, if you have out, time, right? I'm. I'm good to keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get more coffee. Fuck yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'm gonna. I'm gonna put my headphones in too, so they charge a bit because they're about to die. Okay. 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 I'll. I'll. Uh, I'll just leave it recording. Yeah. Cool. I'll be back in. Yeah, like five to ten. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Okay. awesome.